This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. And we are back with another episode of Art of Darkness, the podcast about the dark side of creativity. Kevin, uh, you are my co-host. I am, I am also, I'm your co-host also. I think that's how that works. Uh, I'm Brad Kelly. This is Kevin Kautzman. <laughs> howdy. Uh, howdy, back, y'all. Yeah, howdy. Back, back in, in the saddle. Yeah, yeah. Just mm. just us, uh, three, ep- three core episodes deep into season three. We've had a couple of bangers already, Joseph Conrad and Victor Grun. Um, so we're, we're, we're ready to rock. Um, before we jump too far into it, I just wanted to... Um, say a word and give a shout out to uh, a member, uh, a secret member of the Art of Darkness fam. Uh, my buddy, Chris, who made the banging theme music. Um, the show wouldn't be the same without that theme music. It, it, it re- sets a vibe. I'm always bouncing up and down with mm-hmm. it. And yeah, we, we love our theme music. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, my buddy, Chris, um, our buddy, Chris, you know, he's a guy I've known for, for decades now. Um, having a little having a little rough patch in the family uh right now and so just shout out to you man we love you um if you're out there in the audience if you're praying kind of folk uh just you know add chris to your prayers for a minute um couldn't do you any harm so thanks chris for the music and, yes know. thank you chris for the music art of darkness <laughs> is love mm-hmm. genuinely um, yeah yeah so uh i guess we'll kind of just roll right into it kevin we're gonna talk tonight about maya Deeren. Maya Deeren. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I am. Deer. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to ask you the question. Oh, what? Kevin, what do you know about Maya Deeren? 
I know how to pronounce her name now. Okay. And I know. Well, some people pronounce it Darren, so it could go either way. All right. Well, we're going to say Darren. And I'm a deer in the headlights right now because (laughs) uh, because all I know is the little bits and bobs you've shared in the Art of Darkness telegram, t.me slash Art of Dark pod. We got about 100 people in there. Active little chat. You never know what you're going to find. Sometimes it's a it's a chat about high quality pens. Other times we talk about things like what the number seven means to medievals. Uh, You don't know. You could throw a question into the Art of Darkness uh, chat and come back the next day and have to catch up on some reading. But the point is, (laughs) I know next to nothing. Filmmaker. Mm. Film. That's correct. That's it. That's all I know. So far, so good. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to we're going to learn a lot about her. And I'm going to be honest with you. If you would have asked me who she was a year ago, I would have had less than that as an answer. Um, So this has been a Kevin, this has been a journey of discovery for me. Um, Sometimes these episodes, I already know the subject reasonably well. It takes still a lot of prep, but it's somebody I'm familiar with. And other times, you know, in my, I don't even remember where I came across her name, probably while I was putting together one of the regular uh, Twitter uh, uh, posts that I sometimes do, mm-hmm. which are like almost like Twitter thread mini-sodes of Art of Darkness. Um, of course, at uh, at Art of Dark Pod on Twitter. Yes. Um, so, hmm. yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about it. So, who was Maya Deeran? Maya was a filmmaker, film theorist, writer, poet, and Vadun priestess, roughly in that order. Okay. (laughs) What are we going to talk about on the After Dark? Well, that leads exactly to it. So in the After Dark, she was not only... uh, We we had an episode that had another uh, Vadun practitioner um, that is uh, back in the Zora Neale Hurston episode. Um, And so... This covers a little bit of that same ground, Maya's experience with it, but it's a little bit later. And to be honest, the work that she did um, was probably a little more comprehensive. That is, Maya's work was probably a little bit more comprehensive. There's maybe some debate about that. Um, But we're going to give the audience a primer in Voodoo or Voodoo or Voodoo. basically from the perspective of Maya Deer. Maya Deer wrote a great work of essentially sociology or anthropology, something along those lines, called The Divine Horseman, The Living Gods of Haiti. So we're going to talk a little bit about how she would describe this religious practice, and then we're going to talk about her writing related to the multiple times she was possessed during a ritual. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. If you want to get the extra bonus content for every episode, there's mm-hmm. a book club. We make it worth it. Please support the pod. We do, as a rule, two of these core episodes a month. Brad leads one. I lead the other. We also do dark rooms every up ep- with guests. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then every episode gets this after dark. And that really is the core. That and the book club of what we offer for Patreon. So please, mm-hmm. if you like what we're doing pitch in uh, i've got a stack of books here that they don't pay for themselves so patreon.com slash art of dark pod we genuinely appreciate the support and that is a 
banging idea for After Dark. That is juicy. I'm sure we'll touch on it a little bit during the main episode. We will. It's necessary to telling the story of Maya Deren, but we're going to get more into it. And and I learned a lot about voodoo um, from reading this book. I read pretty much all of this book. And so I thought this is kind of an interesting thing. I don't think that many people know the details of it. We all have a kind of a caricature version of what this this religion was is about and so i think Mm. that'll be interesting to kind of touch on that a little bit just give you guys an idea what what it's all about especially from somebody who really came to believe it i mean she she went down that we'll we'll get to it and and she 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 was possessed on multiple occasions um so it's very it's a good story yeah fascinating all right okay so back to back to the back to the profile here um I want to, so there's going to be some folks who um, listen to the show um, and maybe have no idea who she is. Um, There's going to be some folks who um, have been waiting and thinking, when are they going to do an episode on Maya Deer? Like, obviously, she's the obvious choice to do an episode on. Um, And so I want to, for people who maybe haven't heard of her, um, I want to give you a sense of why is she, from an artistic standpoint, worth talking about right um there's plenty of people who've made uh all kinds of art and you know we might do this show for a couple more decades but we're we're not going to get to everybody so why does maya Deeran get to go in, in the list right um so she made these groundbreaking films experimental films starting in the 1940s these films remain noted influences on experimental film from with directors from Barbara Hammer all the way to David Lynch. Uh, They all and and a number of other people in between reporting her as a direct influence, right? Um, Not only in subject matter, but in technique, in sort of tropes, in how you shoot things in general, just ethic about making films, all of these things. Um, She won the Cannes Film Festival's Grand Prix International when she was 30 years old, as well as a Guggenheim Fellowship at 30 years old. So same year, she wins both of these things. Um, And yet she dies at just age 44 in dire poverty of a cerebral hemorrhage after making 10 short films. Um, So, yeah, so this is she only made short films. She only made short films. There was no feature feature length films hmm. of any kind. I think the longest one, the she made a quote unquote documentary about voodoo, um, and she never really finished it. And we're going to talk about that. It was finished. Somebody else assembled the footage later. Um, that was the I'm closest thing she made to a Criterion Collection vibes here. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. 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 So um, I'm going to read you. Um, and so I'm going to read you a little bit. I have a couple of a handful of books that I'm I'm going to be working from. So one is this uh, book called The Legend of Maya Deren. Um, This is particularly we're, we're going to be using this, the volume one. I think there's three volumes. Um, volume one signatures. This is from 1917 to 1942. Um, this is by uh, a handful of people. VVA uh, Clark, Millicent Hodson and Katrina Naiman. Um, and then I'm also Millicent. Be, Millicent's a good I, that, That's the first Millicent we've come across on the pod. We <laughs> need to right. bring that back. Return to Millicent. <laughs> Tremendous name. Power. It really name. is. It mm. really is. Um, I'll be reading a little bit from, but mostly in the after dark, I'll be reading from Maya Deren's own The Div- uh, Divine Horseman, The Living Gods of Haiti. Um, great book came out in her lifetime. It's 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 really forget it, 
if she never made a film, this book is something special, to be honest. Hmm. Um, and then I'm going to be reading from um, a couple of, oh, I'm going to be reading from a book called Incom- Incomplete Control. That's incomplete as one word uh, by Sarah Keller, which is, I guess you'd re- you'd say this is something like a literary biography, but of a filmmaker. Um, much more of a focus on the work, but with dribs and drabs of, of biographical material as it's relevant. Um, I got a couple um, various uh, articles from the New Yorker and other places that I'll, I'll cite when we get to them. Um, and then well, I've got great... my monocle here somewhere. <laughs> Every time we read from New Yorker, I've got my little top hat and a yeah. monocle. And hmm. uh, and then there's a great documentary called In the Mirror of Maya Deren that was made around 2002, I think. Um, quite good. Um, so we'll we'll be talking about. Uh, I'll be pointing. I'll be talking about stuff that I pulled from that documentary as well. So this one's a bit there. I got a, a bunch of sources. Um, Once again, Brad, you did no show prep. You come unprepared <laughs> and I'm right. just going to have to cover for you again. Right, right, right. Yeah, just vamp. If we could just vamp for a couple hours, just sort of read Wikipedia. And... <laughs> this is a vibe pod now, Brad. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Mm, no, yeah. this Art of Darkness will never become a vibe pod. Brad nope, has put in no, the sir. work. We put in the work. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. I'm excited. That's what I love about this, mm-hmm. this show. I come here today. I get to be the, uh, I get to ride shotgun and mm-hmm. learn all of this. Very exciting. I love film. Uh, I wouldn't consider myself a, an historian of film, uh, even in an amateurish way, but mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a cinephile. I mm-hmm. love cinema. So if you can illuminate a corner of, of cinema for me and for our listeners, mm-hmm. I, I can't think of a better way to spend a Sunday afternoon, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think this is going to be good. And this is this is this is a thing. I think if you walk away because Darren's films are very experimental and they're they're very unconventional. They're short films. Um, They're some of them are not quite narrative. And I think you can walk away from them and say, you know, I'm not sure I really want to watch these films all that much. I, I could see someone saying that. However, her influence on cinema and her the position she plays in the history of cinema is huge. And so I think by understanding her and what she was, where she was and what she was doing, I think you get a better sense of sort of American cinema in general. Um, so this, this is one's... like when I tried to explain Kraftwerk to yeah. various, particularly women in my life. I'm like, no, wait, they're, they're considered to be right. uh, the most influential group of all time, aside from the Beatles next to right. the Beatles. And they listen to it and they go, what is this? <laughs> bon, bon, right. Bon, right. Not the Autobahn. What? Yeah. If, no, you don't under, go to the Wikipedia and okay. All right. Yeah. But yeah, I love so, that. Yeah. Something that can put a, a piece in the grand glass bead game of the generation mm-hmm. of the most 20th century art form. Yes. Film. Yes. Cinema, yes. which is still yeah. very alive. People always say maybe it's dead, it's always dying, but then there's always something new that comes along. And who doesn't love a great film? Right. So, yeah, yeah. Cute. yeah. And right. and I think I think if you've seen some uh, Maya Deren films and thought, you know, I don't totally understand what's going on here. I'm hoping that maybe we can illuminate some of that too, and at least. Um, even if you don't come away with it being a sort of deer and fanatic, you at least understand what she was trying to do because it's, it's, well, we're, we're going to get there. Um, I want to, further in service of this idea of like, why are we talking about her? I want to read this bit from, it's a New Yorker article 
Um, it's actually a review of a very recently released biography on Duran by this guy, uh, Mark Ellis Durant. Uh, I need to get a monocle for every time we read from New Yorker. That would be a funny visual gag for yeah, our just, yeah. just when you read a for, New Yorker article, you put it on. For our YouTube subscribers, help us yeah. boost those numbers. If you're a fan yes, of the please. pod, youtube.com slash at Art of Dark pod. Yeah. All right, cool. Read on, Brad. Yeah. Bring it. <clears throat> Quote, <clears throat> Darren became the genre's Orson Welles, realizing her own original ideas by a fruitless collaboration with an inexperienced, uh, sorry, with, sorry, by a fruitless, by a fruitful collaboration with an experienced cinematographer and putting those ideas over by way of on-screen star power. She became the name of avant-garde cinema by becoming its face. A still of her at a window in meshes is to this day the prime iconic image of American experimental filmmaking. The uh, single frame synecdoche for the entire category. Yet, unlike Wells, who made his movie fame when he was hired by a studio that then released his film, and when critics recognized his originality, Darren created meshes in the absence of institutional, organizational, or, or even intellectual frameworks, which she took upon herself to construct too. A uh, little bit later in the article, Durant quotes from Nin, Nin's diary, that's uh, Anna is Nin, uh, uh, Nin's diary regarding the force exerted by Darren among the uh, Greenwich Village Culturati. We are subject to her will, her strong personality, yet at the same time, we do not trust or love her wholly. We recognize her talent. We talk of rebellion, of being forced, of tyranny, but we bow to her projects and make sacrifices. Nin cites, quote, the power of her personality and notes, quote, her determined voice, the assertiveness and sensuality of her peasant body, her dancing, drumming, all haunted us. We spent a great deal of time talking about her. Um, this is not Nin talking anymore, but still in the article. In a frenzy of creation and organization, Darren seemed uh, seemingly ordered the world around her, at least for a crucial moment, to fit into a pattern of her own design. Above all, she championed and embodied the idea that movies were art and indeed the art of the times. The high art audience that she galvanized for her films would soon be ready to see the high art of movies in places where uh, Darren didn't, in Hollywood films. It took another batch of independent filmmakers, the young French critics who then became the filmmakers of the, new, of the French New Wave, to export Hollywood successfully from Paris to Greenwich Village. But the downtown ground had been prepared by Darren. The careers of the American independent filmmakers who rode that new wave, whether the new, uh, whether the ones who made it to Hollywood, such as Scorsese and Brian De Palma, or the ones who didn't, uh, such as Julian Compton and Peter Emanuel Goldman, would be unthinkable without hers. Okay, so this is this is Whoa, her that's position. Heavy. And if Anna Isnin was saying that, what I got from that episode is that yeah. she was a pretty strong personality herself. So. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and we see this time and time again on Art of Darkness, the podcast about the dark side of creativity, that our subjects, subjects not universally, but almost to a T, have that ability to bend the world to their mm -hmm. will. Yes. And that yeah. is almost a prerequisite to achieve this level of success yeah. as an artist. Yeah, it's like you have a greater gravitational pull somehow than other people yeah especially in these uh i guess maybe we call them the charismatic arts the dramatic mm -hmm. arts film where you have to marshal a great number of people to achieve your vision mm -hmm. theater is similar 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we have in our toe, we have a case of that, although he never really fully realized it because he was so busted up, but his theory mm-hmm. was enough and he still had that kind of charisma. But you think about even Virginia Woolf muscling through. Yeah. Anyway, this is yeah. a theme we see. We see it with, I think the the other filmmaking example that we have is one of our, our early core episodes uh, in Kubrick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just a dynamic personality and in in forceful and just a, a will and willpower is part of it too, right? Just the ability to like <laughs> push through your vision, and not really take you know, not really make sacrifices or compromises. Yeah, and if you've never tried to make a film or even like a series of short films, it's extraordinarily difficult. Filmmaking is a craft it's an art it is collaborative it is not easy um mm-hmm. and so it doesn't spread yeah you, you have to be a run you have to run a business it's right. it's running a business and making the art at the same time yeah it's not like a novel where yeah. you can hide in your hovel mm-hmm. yeah that's what that's what i do i i, I, I write novels and it's it's uh it's uh, being an ex i think david foster wallace a subject of an upcoming episode called writing a novel something like uh private exhibitionism it's like you want to nice. show off, but you don't do any of it in public, right? You, you're you a little thing and then you put it over there and then you walk away. Yeah, you're a little bit modest, though, Brad, because you are now in show business. This is show business. <laughs> There's a lot of drama in true. every Art of Darkness episode. That's so. true. All right. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, OK, so, Kevin, I sent you a link to Meshes of the Afternoon. This is the first uh, Maya Deeran film. Um, I think it's a silent film. The version I sent you has a soundtrack. People keep trying to add soundtracks to it, and I don't totally understand why. Um, Later on, uh, her third husband would, under her guidance, would add a soundtrack, but I couldn't find that version. So if you could just just be watching that in the background while I'm talking about this film. This is her first big film. It's sort of the monument. And then we're going to, once we watch it and talk about it, Again, I'm setting this up. Why are we talking about Maya Deeran? We're then going to go back to the beginning of her life and talk the profile through, right? So yeah, just click that on. Um, So Meshes... Oh, you're on mute there. You can find this on YouTube. Just YouTube Meshes of the Afternoon. Yep, yep. 14 minutes long. It should be 14 minutes long. Okay, so Meshes of the Afternoon. This is the first actual film she made that you know more than a couple of people saw. She'd made films about her cats, and she'd done a lot of photography, which we'll talk about. Um, fourteen minute silent film. Uh, basically, what happens in this is you have Maya Deeran walking home on the street. She finds a flower. She gets a sight of a figure. Um, I guess you would call this figure death. Um, it's this tall black cloaked cloaked figure with a mirror for a face. Um, and it would appear that observing this figure somehow begins to like distort space and time. Um, there's sort of editing tricks begin to trickle into the film once you observe this death figure. Um, and that's a big part of the influential aspect of this is how it was edited for the time. It's 1946, right? Keep that in mind as well. Um, she is it chases... 1946 or 43? Oh, I'm sorry. 43. Yeah, 43. I'm sorry. Okay. 40, 43. Yeah. People didn't really start seeing it until 46. Fair um, enough. There was yeah. uh, something going on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, people were busy. <laughs> so my uh... <laughs> understatement of the podcast to date. That's right. yeah. yeah, that's right. So so the Maya Deeran character sees, we'll call it death, and chases after it. 
is unable to catch it kind of in the way that you'd be unable to catch a person in a dream. Like it seems like you should be able to catch it, but you just can't. Um, and you know, this is all kind of cleverly done through editing. Um, at some point she, she gives up, goes into the house and this is where we start to get some very disorienting camera work. And Kevin might not quite be there yet as he's watching it, but once he gets there, he's going to, I think, see what I'm talking about. Maya, once inside the house, the character of Maya splits into multiple people, each with a different perspective. Um, uh, you know, or it's not clear. Maybe she's dreaming. This has all been a dream so far. None of this stuff is entirely clear. I mean, it's kind of part of the magic of it, right? Is this sort of ambiguity? Um, we start to see actions that have already happened, but from different angles. She's watching herself do things she already did. Um, and here's something I'm going to just read a bit from um, this woman, this writer, uh, Diana Marin, and you can find this at dianamarin.com. Uh, Meshes of the Afternoon, quote, sorry, quote, Meshes of the Afternoon is a memorable, experimental, surreal short film referred to as a poetic psychodrama. The film was ahead of its time with its focus on depicting fragments of the unconscious mind externalizing disjointed mental processes, dreams, and potential drama through poetic cinematic reenactments brought to life by uncanny doppelganger figures. The enigmatic protagonist, played by Darren herself, enters a dream world in which she finds herself returning to the same spots and actions in, or in and around her house, changing a, chasing a strange mirror-faced figure in a nightmarish, entangling, spiraling narrative. While she ritualistically goes through near, nearly identical motions with some slight changes within a domestic space that is imbued with dread and a sense of doom, unreality, and foreignness, we also witness glimpses of multiple versions of herself. The film conjures up the uncanniness of dissociation or more specifically depersonalization, self-obsession, a woman's dual inner slash outer life and subjective experience of the world all congruous with Darren's interest in self-transformation, interior states, surpassing the confines of personality and self-construction. Okay, so this is sort of the academia. The This is the sort of breakdown afterwards. Now, some of this stuff Darren would agree with and some of the stuff maybe she wouldn't. Um, I'm watching it right now. It is eerie. And you can yeah. certainly see the influence immediately of Lynch. It looks mm -hmm. like it must. Was it filmed in L.A.? It was filmed in L.A. Yep. 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 Yeah. I was getting filmed in her apartment. Yeah, Lost mostly. Highway vibes big time and mm -hmm. Blue Velvet. Just watching it for the first time. Yeah. And there's some camera work in there that's very it's done on purpose. I mean, she she would she would storyboard every camera movement before she made something. You get the so, sense of that. Yeah. And, and so some of it is very disorienting. But if you were to watch it very slowly or watch it again, you would realize it's there's no camera tricks. It's just how she's moving the camera in the space becomes very up is down, left is right kind of thing. It's she's also a very striking woman. She maybe is. not maybe not conventionally beautiful, mm -hmm. but stunning. In her yes. way. Yeah, she's yeah. eye catching. She would be memorable. If you were someplace mm -hmm. and you saw her, you you would you would notice her, I think, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very sort of she's she's little. She's like five foot two, but she's like one of those people who's like carries themselves bigger than that, you know? Yeah. Good. Cool. Yeah, here I'm gonna read a little bit from this. Um I want to give you the feminist reading on on my dear and in particular meshes in the afternoon. And I'm I'm assuming you're still still watching that. So 
I this know. is from Incomplete Control by Sarah Keller. Again, this is the sort of literary, literary biography of Maya Deren. <clears throat> Quote, uh, Lauren Rabinovitz interprets the film's fragmentation of the body as a sign of how Deren depicted the, quote, objectified body of woman in a way familiar to fil uh, feminist film theory of the 1970s. It marks the body's to-be-looked-at-ness, with the female body's divisibility enabling its fetishization for the male subject whose gaze controls her image. Rabinowitz uh, describes Darren's film as being a, quote, woman's discourse that rewrites Hollywood's objectification of women by addressing a female subject who must contend with her own objectification. Um, her reading of the film provides a powerful corrective to interpretations that dismiss it as being self-involved self and begins to suggest how the film simultaneously presents women as subject and object. When Catherine uh, Susloff argues that Deering, quote, sets into, uh, into play a crisis in subjectivity in film criticism and practice, she is mostly concerned, like Rabinowitz, with the recuperation of Deering in the, in the 1970s by those interested in establishing a feminist discourse that postdates Deering's work. So the feminists eventually, like like much like uh, Anna's Nin, the feminists later kind of found Maya Deering and they said, oh, whoa, 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 hold on. This is <laughs> she was already doing the stuff we were trying to think about and talk about and, and understand what we could do in film. She was doing this in 1943. Right. Um, and perhaps it was done better by other people later. But but Darren was certainly breaking ground in this regard. Um, uh, there's one other little bit here. Uh yeah, the establishment of a viable cinematic format for a specifically female subjectivity. Uh, as opposed to the hegemony uh, of uh, male subjectivity and hence power, uh, remains a worthwhile aspect of study relative to Darren's work. As we have seen in Darren's interest in Eliot, uh, that's T.S. Eliot, and uh, Holm, she, however, held a view that subjectivity and how one experiences the world are inextricably wrapped up in the structures of social life, artistic creation, and the vicissitudes of perception. So she was a modernist, right? She would, she would, you know, if she were a writer, you would consider her like a literary modernist for sure. Not just a woman living in the modern era, but actually contending with some of the same thematic and philosophical and aesthetic um, choices and crises that, that the literary modernists were. And she was, in fact, profoundly influenced by T.S. Eliot and other poets of that era. <clears throat> yeah, that um, comes over and again, just a striking woman. Uh, yeah. A striking yeah. figure and... uh yeah, she was. She knew that, and she knew mm. how to. She knew how to use it in a way. I mean, she knew how to use it for, you know, to to garner attention in a specific way. To, right? She's, that that death figure with the mirror is a vision. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm I'm kind of surprised I've never seen this before. I'm very glad that I'm watching it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very it's cool. I'm yeah. gonna go. I'm gonna go down this rabbit hole. <laughs> yes, and all of her films are different. I mean, they all there's there's similarities you can see, but they're all they're all different. They're all treading diff very different ground, and she gets she gets better at making them, right? Mm. Flat, straight mm -hmm. up, right? Um, so let's go back to and you know you can continue watching that if it's still going. I just wanted you to have a little bit of a feel for what she actually was doing artistically instead of me just telling you about her constantly. Um uh so Maya Deren <clears throat> is born Eleonora uh uh Deranowski on April 29th of 1917 in Kiev and died on Friday the 13th of October 
1961 in New York City, living in Greenwich Village with her then husband, uh, Tiji Ito, a Japanese fellow. Um, <clears throat> so the question is, how does a Russian Jewish woman born in the year of the Russian Revolution end up with a Guggenheim Fellowship, being the centerpiece of the Greenwich Village art scene, having a legendary career in American film, uh, and, and all of this, right? <laughs> how does this how does this happen? She's born again, 1917 in Kiev. Um, so Eleonora, or as people in her family would call her, Alinka, um, she was the only child of Solomon and Marie. Um She's born again in the same year that the Russian Revolution kicks off, right? So she's in she's in Kiev when the Russian Revolution kicks off. That's the year that she's born. Um, and just a couple years later in 1919, so Russian Revolution starts 1917 and it it continues on. I think officially you would call the Russian Revolution over in 1923, I believe. So you've got this period of kind of turmoil and chaos, right? Um, 1919, there would be these massive pogroms in the Ukraine and Poland that resulted in the deaths of about 100,000 Jews uh, and a dramatic increase in the ghettoization of Jews, right? Particularly if you were a Jew living in a rural area, you would get pushed into the central cities, right? They, they, were, they were sort of trying to containerize everybody. And I don't want to go off into a big Russian Revolution history thing here, but apparently there were pogroms on both sides. So the Bolsheviks at times had pogroms. The ones that were a little bit uh, more dangerous were during the revolution, the, the quote unquote white forces launched a number of pogroms, um, oftentimes killing a lot of people. And if not killing, certainly put, pushing them into circumstances that were uh a lot less pleasant to be in, to, to make another understatement. Um, the Deerans kind of were able to largely evade the pogroms. Um, and this is in large part because Maya's mother and her father both came from very well-established families. These were not, you know, these were not, they weren't part of the Jewish community that was like living out in the hinterlands farming right, small pieces of land. Shtetl Jews, they're urban Kiev, right? Established, they're yeah. They're, ed they're educated, and their families mm -hmm. have positions of you know of maybe not power, but at least some degree of influence, and so they're able to more like to... the Kafka class of Judaism. You know? Yeah, I would say mm -hmm. I would say that's probably that's probably about right. Um, so let's talk about her parents, because this is I think this is kind of talking about both the parents is interesting. Um, Marie is her is her mother. Uh, Marie was born Marie Fiedler, um, and the Fiedlers had been prominent in Kiev for more than half a century. Right. So this is a, this is a well-established family. Um, Marie's mother, which is Maya's grandmother, was actually one of the few women to graduate uh, in medicine from Vienna. So her grandmother was a doctor was was a, accredited as a doctor from a, a school in Vienna. Um, Whoa, yeah. So that's a big deal in the yeah you know it, in, it, in the nineteenth nineteenth century. century. Yeah, that's yeah. a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Now in Kiev, she couldn't technically practice medicine, um, but she was you know she was a go to midwife. She was the sort of the the best midwife in Kiev right at the time. Um, interestingly. Um, the family She's a Tom Brady of midwives. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and um, Maya, interesting on, on Maya's mother's side, there is a direct line of descendants um, from Baal Shem Tov. And I don't expect you to know who Baal Shem Tov is, but this is the man who founded the Hasidic order. 
So Maya is nine generations down from the man who founded uh, Hasidism, right? Just kind of interesting, just we're kind of positioning where she belongs in history, right? Now, Solomon, Maya's father, he also comes from a well-to-do family, maybe one notch below the Fiedlers, but still pretty well-established. His grandfather had had a successful distillery, and anytime you have a successful distillery, everybody in town likes you. We've we've seen this a number of times. Crowley Ales. Yeah. Uh, who was the figure the where they had a Canadian? Uh, it was um oh. uh, SNL. Uh, oh, Norm Norm Macdonald. No, no, no. Uh, not Norm. Oh, Gilda. 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 Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, Gilda yeah. Radner. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's yeah, right. that's the yeah. third time it's come up. So apparently brewing, distilling, even if you come from a hyper evangelical family like the Crowleys did, yeah. it's a great way to make a buck. Generational well, you, wealth in the yeah. hops, people. Yeah. And you got to think, too, that's a good social mobility kind of thing, right? Like it's not you don't have to go to the right school. You don't have to mm. go. Right. You just have mm-hmm. to be good at doing this thing that people want. And yeah, it, it's yeah. something everybody wants. There's a lot. I know. I know I want it. There's a there's a <laughs> lot of demand. It's not going away. It's addictive. Right. It's also right. culturally acceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't we look at all of the social costs that alcohol has and we go, mm-hmm. ah, that's all right. That's ah, worth it. Yeah. yeah <laughs> no yeah. big deal. Kind of insane, yeah. So it's, right? it is sort of insane, but at the same time, it's, it's the, it, it, it's, it's essential to Western civilization. I mean, and it yeah. really just almost globally. Uh, so yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's a, this one quick trick can make your family uh, wealthy, but I, who knows what the <laughs> economics of it now are. However, we do see here historically, this is the third time it's come up, come up where we yeah. start talking about family money yeah. and it comes family from money coming from brewing booze. or distilling. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. And so on his Solomon's, so Solomon's grandfather on his father's side, successful distiller on his mother's side so his Maya's grand grandparents um there were you know rabbis and doctors and a prominent writer for the largest hebrew magazine in warsaw right so this is a well-established family there's also a uh there's also a, a darren candy factory that was a source of wealth um so some because of all of this, because of their standing, they were able to sort of dodge the whole ghettoization kind of thing, right? They were able to avoid getting wrapped up in all of that um for a while. Um now he, you know, and because somehow, and no, actually nobody knows this. Apparently, there was a couple different con- conflicting family legends about how this happened, how Solomon managed to go to school and become a psychiatrist, because technically he wasn't supposed to be able to do that because he was a Jew. And it wasn't like they were hiding that they were Jews. I mean, this was, they were obviously, everybody knew that the Daranowskis were Jews, right? And the Fiedlers particularly were Jews. So but with names like Daranowski <laughs> and Fiedler, I don't know right. how. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it's so my point is like there was no deception. They just managed to finagle it somehow. Right. Um now and I think part of it is probably because Solomon was a very bright man, right? So he's he um he learned tracks from the Talmud by heart when he was 10 years old, which is apparently a big accomplishment. I, I don't know enough about the Talmud to say. Um, and he read, he was reading all of the Russian classics as a boy, right? So when everybody else is watching Paw Patrol, he's reading Dostoevsky, apparently. <laughs> everybody else is just like, I don't know what, spinning a dreidel? Like, right. what, what are you doing? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. 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 this, this yeah. kid's reading uh, yeah. Tolstoy. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
so he had um he had five brothers and sisters this was this is maya's uh, aunts and uncles on, on her father's side most of these would end up um moving to america um the first of these was maya's uncle louis uh lewis who was an atheist and a radical and also an anglophile um and he would actually despite being sort of the black sheep of the family it's kind of interesting when the Darrens eventually leave he's the one that gets them makes it so they can come to america it's right? such a pity that that guy didn't live to see monty python happen because he would have been <laughs> right? the perfect fan for them what did you what did you do how did you describe him an atheist an atheist a, a radical and an anglophile yeah he's their target yeah. audience yeah yeah for <laughs> sure for sure um now the wikipedia page uh, for uh maya dear will tell you that the the reason the Darrens left, they were still the Darinovskis. The reason that they left was because of pog uh, pogroms implemented by the White Volunteer Army. Marie, though, her uh, Maya's mother in this book, The Legend of Maya Deeran, which is one of the strangest biographies I've read in doing this entire show. And maybe I'll explain why when we get a little deeper into it. Um, according to an interview later with uh, Marie, um, she said that Solomon, Maya's father, had been studying with this guy Bekterev. And this who is a famous Russian psychiatrist um, who was in direct um, competition with uh, oh, who's the guy with the dogs, um, the psychiatrist with the, the Pavlov Pavlov. He was in direct competition with Pavlov, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. Yeah. Um, so and they were studying the effects of hypnotism on alcoholism. So this Bekterev guy and with Solomon's help and other people's help, they thought maybe they could cure alcoholism with with hypnosis. Right. Is this the same family that profited from a distilling business? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they get you coming in. They get you going out. It's perfect. It's a perfect. I don't love it's a perfect that. Business. I don't. I, it's a, I don't love that very much. Yeah, but yeah. all right. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're going to be fair, maybe Solomon thought, "Oh, the crime that we have wreaked on this culture. Right. Maybe I can do a way we to can help it. solve it. Fair enough. That's the yeah. that's yeah. the uh, the sympathetic reading. Right. Be right. A right. Word, but I'm <laughs> going to tone tone myself yeah. down here. All right. Yeah. So, um. As the as the revolution kicked off, <clears throat> um, Solomon Deren became involved. I'm just referring to them as the name they're going to. They're, when they come to America, they're going to shorten it to Darren. Um, D Solomon Darren becomes involved in Trotsky's educational program. He was he knew he knew Trotsky personally. Um, he may have even been director of this educational program, and this is where. Um, it was an educational program for soldiers, but which became sort of a Red Cross effort as the war got worse and worse. So, like as the revolution goes on and things get more and more dire, first of all, Solomon's running this educational program, and then later he's just like treating directly people who are afflicted by the war, and then eventually, like they need even more bodies, and so he gets as like a grown a, a man doctor gets drafted into the into the into the conflict, Ooh. right? coming attractions yeah that is not a <laughs> yeah. fun idea i think yeah. i think in every in every man's life i think there's a little subliminal thing happening or a subconscious thing happening where we go okay i'm no longer fighting age right i'll, I'll yeah but then you have if you have a son you know you gotta go mm -hmm. okay yeah but we all mm -hmm. live with like this damocles sort of the mirror back that humanity is yeah well and even early warlike yeah when you hear about conflicts you know whether it's america going someplace or whatever it's like you know yeah you got to get into that town and you got to lock down all of the military aged men right that's the thing that's who you're looking out for when the you know when it really goes down yeah mm. and so he was apparently yeah, old. i'm ready to podcast in the gulag i'll right. be all right <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. Hopefully they can bring our, our booms and our mics. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, what's Minnesota <laughs> Federal District eight, District 8. Good morning. What's the, what's the is, Wi-Fi is, like? <laughs> In the gulag? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That'll be great. You and I mm. can, you can, you can hold down Michigan. I'll hold down Minnesota. <laughs> we'll do just drive time radio for the gulag. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right hey man you know whatever, whatever it takes gets us through yeah mm-hmm. so anyway solomon gets solomon's drafted into the into the actual conflict right and there's a time where uh his wife marie and maya who's just a child um they don't even know where he's at he's they know he got sort of taken and he he's on they don't know if he's on like the front lines of the revolution what, what's happening um they get and in, in, in the meantime, they've kind of got to make do. Food is kind of running scarce, right? I mean, this is literal wartime. Um, I think Marie gets typhoid or something like that. And Maya has a mastoid, which is this nasty bacterial infection, sort of like in your inner ear slash sinuses that she has to have surgery on. And it gets kind of dire. And so at one point, Solomon shows back up and is basically says, hey, I've got a way out of this. We're going to leave the country. Um. And this is in 1923, um, or sorry, 1922. Um, and Solomon goes on ahead to Poland. He he's got he's got some connections that can get him to Poland. And the idea is he's going to go to Poland. It's the winter. He's going to go get it figured out. And then when the weather's a little bit warmer, he's going to send for Marie and Maya, which he in fact does. Um, now. There's this part I'm going to read about Marie and Maya crossing uh, into Poland. And this is, again, this is from uh, Legend, the Legend of Maya Deer. Excuse me. The subtitle is A Documentary Biography and Collected Works. There's all kinds of material in here. Um, there's interviews, less, like unedited interviews. There's like little essays that Maya wrote when she was like in college and stuff. It's kind of an interesting little, little deal. But I want to read... <clears throat> um, I want to read this one little part here. Okay. Um, this is okay. So this is Marie Deren. This is like in the 70s. She's telling this, the the people who put together this biography, the story of her and Maya coming across the border into Poland. Um, quote, you see, the man arranged so that we were in a peasant hayloft until it would be dark enough to sneak out. Meanwhile, the man kept looking out. Then it was arranged that he would carry Maya because she was little and it was dark and so on in the field. We have to make it as fast as possible. So he came and said, let's go. Um, (laughs) That means let's go. (laughs) You know, no maybes about it. He took Maya and went ahead. Then I crept down from the hayloft and came out, but I don't see neither the man nor Maya. He went ahead. He thought I would follow right behind him. When he turned around and saw that I am not there, he put Maya under a little bush and ran back for me. And then the, the people writing this say, how did you find Maya? It was near. When she saw me, she got her arms around me, and I knew that only death could take her away. She clung to me so. She was so frightened. When we crossed already, there was the guard, an officer. That Polish officer said, you're a communist. And the guide said, please, officer, communists would go with this child, traveling with a child. Her husband is a physician. But anyhow, I sort of looked good to him or something. I looked so pitiful, I guess. So he said, all right, go on ahead, go. So very dicey, like real fleeing the country situation. Maya's a little kid and there's a few minutes where she's standing in a snowy field by herself and it's not clear what's going to happen, right? 
Um, yeah, heavy. this would yeah, this would come up apparently come up later. So this Mark Alice Durant biography, which I only got to read parts of, he takes some creative liberties and it's not clear what he's writing actually happened and what didn't. Um, but when Maya later on is in the hospital dying, there's apparently this bit of qu this quotation that Mark Alice Durant uses. And I'm going to just assume I think it's true. Um, uh, and uh, Marie said to her, Alinka, which is Maya's name as a, as a girl, Alinka, do you remember being lost in the snow? And Maya said, yes, Mamchka. And Marie said, on the Polish border, you were five years old at night, lost in the snow. I called and called, but I had to whisper because we were escaping. Yes, Mamchka. And then long minutes passed in silence, and Deering called out, Mamchka, save me. Yes, I will, Alinka. I know you will, Mamchka. So apparently this moment, this lost in the snow, trying to cross into Poland, is literally the last thing on Maya's mind at the end of her life, right? Um, five years old. It's pretty mm. it's pretty intense, you know, and yeah. you know traumatic and for sure, right? And very confused, you don't know what's going on. And and she again, I'd said she just had this surgery not long before it. And and so it was touch and go. It was a little uncertain what's gonna happen, right? Now, um she eventually, when they get to America, it actually works out. I'm gonna say it works out reasonably well for, for a while anyway. Um uh Solomon, her father. He manages to get uh, it takes some time for him to get a certification, but he's a brilliant guy. He really is a smart dude and capable. Um, he pretty rapidly gets certified and then gets put in charge of the uh, where, what is it called? There he gets put in charge of a school in Syracuse, New York. I had it right here. It's the Institute for the Feeble Minded, I believe. And he he's the head of this school in Syracuse, right? And it's basically like a like an asylum essentially mm -hmm. um yeah. and i think i'm in, i think i'm in that group chat yeah <laughs> that's right yeah ifs shout out yeah <laughs> oh i've got it <laughs> i've got it here he was the he became the head psychiatrist at the state institute for the feeble-minded in syracuse what um, a word feeble-minded yeah, I think it was like yeah. they were probably is one of these, you know, there's this sort of treadmill of words you're allowed to say and not allowed to say. Mm. And at mm -hmm. one point that was probably like the very the most po appropriate possible terminology for these people. Yeah, I, I looked it up and it's just a person unable to make intelligent decisions or judgments. And I think we've all been there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, sure. Yeah, I was there earlier today. Um, really? So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so he would, uh, in this job, he would really become a kind of a pillar of the community. You can imagine you're the head of this institution and Syracuse is a, is a good sized city, but it's not a huge city, right? So if you're the head of some kind of state school there, you're, you're very, very rapidly. That's a, a serious the role. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And he navigated that as an immigrant. They had English. They must, um, not great. A little mm. bit, you know, mm. they both, they all just learned it very fast. I mean, I think, I think when you talk about the Darinovskis, I think you're talking about just genetically a family of people who are a little bit smarter than the rest of us, you know, it wouldn't yeah. surprise me. Yeah. Sounds a little bit like it. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
and he would eventually, interestingly enough, he would eventually give these like public talks on these topics ranging from like mental hygiene and then World War II kicks off. He's giving public talks on, quote, the psychology of war. So he's just a he's, you know, he's an interesting kind of public intellectual figure as well. I love that phrase, mental hygiene. Mm -hmm. It's this very incongruous sort of two words that I feel like shouldn't fit together. And yet they do. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. Interestingly, Maya has a relatively normal American childhood. Like if you read the description of her being once they get to America and once she learns her English, which happens very quickly. And, you know, once her father gets a job and all of that, you read it and it sounds almost idyllic. It's just very much like living in a nice town, living in a decent house, you know, kids on the street. She's got a German shepherd. It's a very like it's it's more bucolic than most of our subjects, I would say, for a while. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to read this essay she wrote, but there's already things intellectually happening for her. Yeah. At this ahead. point, I'm very curious how we get from this. Yeah, there's been a little trauma. She's been mm -hmm. uprooted, the moment in the snow and everything. But I'm wondering how yeah. we get from this uh, little girl with a sort of wildly successful family mm -hmm. uh, to the the grown woman who makes a short film with a death-like figure that has a mirror for a face. Right. Yeah, dude, that is so metal. <laughs> it really metal. is. Metal. It really yeah. is. Gotta yeah. watch that movie. What's the name of that that short film one more time? Me Brad? Meshes People? of the Afternoon. Watch yeah. it. Yeah. And that's generally considered her sort of go the go-to film. I don't personally think I like the well when we're gonna talk about it. I like a, a film called At Land a little bit better, but but um it's quite good. Um, okay, so here is um, uh, Maya got very interested in writing. She was sort of a poet and a writer before she was a filmmaker. And when she was um, a, get this, when she was a senior at NYU at 18 years old, she wrote this article um, called Self-Portrait. <laughs> okay, fun. That's fun. <laughs> um, I shouldn't say it's an article. It was for an assignment, um, but it was in a journalism class she was taking. Um, quote, I seem to have been more intelligent than the average pupil in the public grammar school, which I attended. I say this not with joy nor pride because I have wished since rather desperately at times that normalcy with its limited social responsibility had been my lot. I say it as a statement of fact for so um, so psycho psychological tests have shown. And while I am dubious about their exactness, I cannot be about my personal life, which finds me at 18, a senior in college. It all has its base, I suppose, in my mental temperament, which, unless my mind is racing, falls into an abysmal inertia. When in the third grade, my report card was one series of red marks, my father, convinced of my ability and understanding of my temperament, advised that I be moved into the fifth, I began my rocket school career. Incidentally, my rocket school, my rocket school career. It's not very well written, but she's 18. <laughs> Incidentally, I was a star pupil in the fifth grade immediately. But the solution was not as simple as that. While my classmates from year to year were equal with me mentally, I could not uh, breach that social experience gap, which must of necessity exist between children of two years difference in the teen stage. Thus, unable to find companionship either with those of my mental age because of my chronological infancy, nor with those of my chronological age because of their mental infancy, I was thrown back upon the adult companionship of my parents and friends. 
I have recollection, recollections of desiring often a normal comradeship with children, but the, ad, uh, the adaptation was not as difficult as might be expected, and I have no cause to regret it, for my contact with adults was of the best. My father is a highly educated man, a doctor by profession, now superintendent of the school we mentioned, blah, blah, blah. Perhaps because of this accidental phenomenon, and perhaps also by reason of my nature, I acquired or perhaps de developed that relentlessly inquiring and violently revolting nature of my parents. My father tells me that since he can remember me, I have always been analyzing and then revolting against the injustice of the social scene about me. So she's an intense kid. <laughs> for sure and she apparently like apparently you know her father is running this school and apparently there was a phd doing iq research coming through and they gave maya a test when she was in third grade so in third grade what are you eight years old i think mm, something like that ish. yeah yeah right there. yeah they decided they were like oh yeah she shouldn't be in third grade <laughs> it's like after they gave us her this iq test it was like let's 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 push her a little bit let's get her a little bit further along the line um uh, I did a little bit of a, this is a tangent, but I did a yeah. little bit of digging on the Syracuse State School. Uh, okay. It was yeah. founded in 1851 in Albany, uh, and then it was later called, well, it was, it was originally called New York State Asylum for Idiots, uh, and yes. then eventually it would become, <laughs> nothing changes, uh, Syracuse State Institution for Feeble-Minded Children. I think this might mm -hmm. be the same one. Do you think this probably, is the same Yeah, one? I think that's yeah. probably right. Yep. It was only uh, in the 90s, it was the Syracuse State School. It was only shut down in 1998. Uh, mm, wow. And it goes on. Anyway, oh, bit a little, little bit of a tangent yeah. there. Kind of interesting. Yeah, maybe yeah. maybe we'll talk a little more about it on the After Dark. Sure. Yeah, well, that was interesting, too. When you said the feeble-minded, that's interesting. I was like, I bet that was them trying to catch up with the times, right? And yeah, they used to just call it idiots. This is a school for idiots. I that mean, was the word, but then it becomes a pejorative, and then right. But happily, nothing like this continues to, no, to go on. No, no, no. We've got it. We finally got exactly the right words, and we won't have to change them. Yeah, somebody made somebody in a chat said something like, uh, "We can't call them gingerbread men anymore. It's insulting." And I said, "Well, ginger is offensive to me. Sugar, <laughs> sugar, folks, please, sugar, folks." <laughs> it never ends yeah, i mean no, it, that's it, the it point never, yeah. it will never it stop can't that's possibly end yeah yeah, yeah. um mm. okay so uh let's see oh and then okay so here's here's <laughs> solomon and marie maya's parents they they do their best by maya but they don't get along very well there's a time when uh maya's a girl where uh, Marie, her mother, is living in Columbus and Solomon's living in Syracuse and Maya's splitting time. And it comes down to they decide um, in 1930 when Maya's 13 that what they're going to do is they're going to put uh, Maya in the International School of Geneva, sometimes called Ecolint. Okay. And what's going to go on is Marie is going to go to Paris. And she's going to do some things in Paris without Solomon. Solomon's going to stay behind in Syracuse. And Maya's going to go to this school in Geneva. This school is actually super interesting. It was established by the League of Nations and uh, in the International Labor Organization for the children of dignitaries and ambassadors and people working for the League of Nations. Right. Maya is her parents are not involved in any of these organizations. They just put her in this school. It's a very good school. It's very different 
I mean, it's this also is in, this is in Switzerland. This is in Geneva. Yeah. Oh, in Geneva. Yeah. This is a an elite private school in Geneva, founded by the League of Nations and the Union. The International Labor Organization, the capital I, capital L, capital O. These are the oh, two first like international lefty, international lefty, hardcore oh, yeah. uh, training ground. Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, for sure. Mm. For sure. And, and you know, at the same time, yeah, it's, it's a little sus, I suppose. But at the same time, it's also a good school, right? Like just from a from an academic standpoint. So it's. It's an interesting place for her to go, and it's small. There's like 70 students total, and they do a lot of interesting things. I mean, they go on, and, and it's also a boarding school, so you're there kind of on your own. Um, and, you know, the more I learn about boarding schools, the more I learn that it's like either a great experience or hell on earth. And it very much depends on not only the school and maybe the kid, but like the kids around them and the times, because like you see these letters and there's a lot of letters between Maya and her mother in this book. And you see, like you literally are reading letters as she's in Geneva. And as you go along, okay, she starts out and she's a little nervous about what's going on. She doesn't really know what's going on. And by the end, she's like managing her own finances. She's like, she's very like, she's very sharp about a bunch of different things. And you're like, Oh, she's 15 years old. Like, you know what I mean? She's just like, mother, I've decided that I need to, instead of spending X dollars on this, I think it would be better if I spent X dollars on this other situation so that, you know, she's just wow. very calculated Precocious. and can thoughtful. Yeah, yeah, mm. for sure. Mm. And you can watch her writing get better, like letter to letter. It's fascinating. Like she'll become a better writer in two months. She'll become noticeably better at writing. So she's, she's sharp. She's a sharp cookie. No question about it. Um, now, there's some things about her mother. It's interesting. So I think her mother had the best of intentions for her, but I think there were some challenging things too. So there's a lot of letters that Maya writes to her mother. And there's a time where her mother is um, studying French at the Sorbonne, right? And uh, Paris, I think it's about a five hour drive. I don't know what that would be by train. So it's not that far from Geneva, really. And no, yet, it, no, it's really not. Uh, yeah. yeah, for Americans, it's like, yeah, yeah, it might seem farther than it is. Yeah, it's yeah. actually quite close. Yeah, you know? it's not that close. Yeah, we, yeah, we think oh, it's two different countries. It's like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, you can go. You know, it's it's probably something like Detroit yeah, to Chicago. It's, it's five and a half hours by yeah. my car. Yeah. Now the idea was that Marie would be there all the time whenever Maya needed her, but. The truth comes down that over the course of the three years, Marie visited uh, Maya actually a lot less often than a lot of the other kids were visited. Um, and so there's a sort of this sense that like Marie went to Paris and the idea was, well, I'll be close to Maya. But she was sort of doing her own thing hmm. um, and not to throw a ton of shade at her, but but it's it's a complicated relationship. And you see in a lot of these letters that Maya writes her mother, she's saying like, Mom, why why aren't you writing me more? like cool. what's what's going on you know yeah and then um there's other ones where like you don't get marie's letters but you get the letters from maya and you get you'll get maya like pleading with her mom not to be mad at her um you'll get ones mm. where she'll say mom i think you'll be really proud of me i lost a bunch of weight um since christmas or whatever right mm. um and you know again i'm not you know teenage teenage girls and their mothers it can be tricky it's a tricky relationship to have right and you're trying to manage it over letters so i'm not trying to make too much out of this um 
But there was certainly a little bit of alienation from her mom while she worshipped her father, who wasn't really involved in her life at all while she was in Geneva. So you have one of those interesting dynamics, right? Where it's like the one who's not paying attention to you at all is, is sort of like this hero figure. And this one that's like three quarters of the way paying attention to you is like you kind of resent them in a weird way. Um, so anyway, she goes to that school. She does really well. She discovers poetry and she discovers that she is something of a poet. She gets kind of celebrated by her classmates and some of the teachers for her abilities as a poet. Other things she does while she's there, she visits Rome. Uh, she goes skiing a lot. She gets she gets like really enthusiastic about skiing. Um, and she makes some lifelong friends who she will be in uh, relationships of correspondence for years with. Right. So this is a pretty good experience for her. Um, she in 1933, she returns to Syracuse. Uh, it's actually announced in the local newspaper when she's when she returns and it says the headline is girl prepares for college in three years of study at Geneva. That's the headline. And I wow. like that. It's like, girl, did you know that a girl can mm, go to college? Mm -hmm, you know, right. it's yeah, like, it, it's she can like prepare that. in a place like Geneva. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Wild. Right. Mm, what um, a story. Yeah, and it talks about it talks about how she spoke multiple languages and that she had this like talks about this experience she had where she was on a rowboat in a storm and all these things. It's just kind of charming. It's sort of like local color or whatever. The one thing I thought was interesting about it is okay, she's uh 1933, she's 15 years old, and the newspaper gives her home address. Can you imagine a newspaper now giving the home address of a 15-year-old just... girl? doxes you right away <laughs> yeah no foreplay straight to doxing yeah what a right. weird invention what it's we just yeah different times different just times that, i guess then. yeah yeah mm. yeah, <laughs> yeah it was like my or uh eleonora darren of blah 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 onadega street You're like just chill you know like people don't need to know that <laughs> I think this episode could be called Maya Deeran's home address. <laughs> that's that's interesting. We'll see. We'll see if that sticks. Um, so she uh, she attends Syracuse University. So she starts school early. Like we said, she's a senior at, at 18 at NYU. She starts at Syracuse, though, right, which is a which is a very good school. Um, uh, she starts getting a starts out getting a degree in English literature and though she's studying literature and she's learning about poetry and she becomes a pretty adept a very adept writer and I think a pretty adept thinker about literature her biggest preoccupation at this time is uh organizing for socialist movements uh <laughs> ah, here we go yep. <laughs> yeah. she is a fellow traveler she yeah, is on yeah. board a woman of the left yeah interestingly well you think it's like she got pushed she kind of i think probably from their the family's perspective they got pushed out of uh russia not by the revolution but by the old guard right the by conservatives the, the, right the, yeah the white forces right and then she went to sure. geneva which was basically a leftist indoctrination program right mm -hmm. and so right. some of this is kind of making sense right yeah it's um, a good school mm -hmm. <laughs> right right we right. know what that means yeah yeah <laughs> wink wink uh yeah she starts out so she starts out by joining something interesting but i i think this is hilarious it should be the name of a punk band she joined the social problems club 
which I just think is a great name. Based. <laughs> Incredibly based. Yeah. And then she very rapidly becomes a member of the Young People's Socialist League. Um, but at the same time, she's sort of a typical teenager. So she's a lot of her letters, they talk about boys and dates and things like that, right? Typical, like very typical, you know, like I said, it's a typical American childhood in some ways, um, that, which I found very charming, right? There's a lot of talk about her German shepherd. And I, I looked up the address that's in that newspaper and that house is still there. It looks like a very nice neighborhood to live in, right? Um and her father is again established member of the community, right? Oh, doc, oh, your father's Dr. Darren. Oh, why? I, you know, I have a cousin who's at his institute, and they do a fantastic job. That kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, and she, she is very interested in journalism. I have so a feeble-minded guy. cousin. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I believe he's a little feeble-minded. You see? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it becomes an insult. Yeah. Yeah. He's also a ginger. He's also a ginger. <laughs> oh my god! Um, she goes to at Syracuse. She becomes. Uh, she's a journalist. She writes like the student newspaper, right? Um, which I, I don't know for you if the student newspaper was a big deal at your school you went to, but some schools it was like a yeah, big deal. Some people really took it quite seriously. I don't think mm-hmm. I ever did anything for it. There was like a sidebar independent one that I wrote mm-hmm. a few things for, but uh, I, I was also a little precocious. I started a little like uh, very young. So I was mm. always kind of a year behind in age, mm. one of the youngest in my class. So it was a little uneven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my interests were either just obsessive or not at all. Uh, <laughs> right. I know that. Feeling. Again, nothing changes. <laughs> I know that feeling for sure. Uh, but yeah, it was a big deal. And I know people mm-hmm. would make that almost like the band kids were band kids, but like the student newspaper kids really got into it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And from what little I've seen of it, um, they it is actually an interesting like whether or not the newspaper is something worth reading for somebody who's not in the college it was like an interesting like teaches you how to write a bit teaches you mm-hmm. how to present prepare something edit. for public and edit yeah and, and you write. learn you learn yeah. some of the lingo um mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's a thing yeah. that's a, i could yeah. see that being a valuable thing even now you do a mm-hmm. little blog maybe you learn how to use wordpress a little bit you do it for the, right. the school there's a lot there that's uh materially useful because as we know brad writers can't make money there are no writers out here making money any single way right one of the biggest most ridiculous lies that anybody will ever tell you it's just absurd (laughs) yeah in any case yeah so she she hit the she hit the ground running with the journal the student journalism thing and she was interviewing like celebrities like i think cab calloway came through town and she interviewed him and she interviewed max eastman a writer another writer who she would later become like the uh his his personal assistant so she was already kind of making moves um in 1934, she does have this really interesting story. In 1934, she meets this boy and they hitchhike to New York City. 1934, she's like 16, 17 years old. They hitchhike to New York City. She sets up this elaborate lie so that her parents think she's staying with some friend of hers from Geneva. And they hitchhike to they hitchhike to New York City and they don't have anywhere to stay. They don't really have any money. They stay in like a flop house. And like at first, Maya's like trying to be like, no, we have to have separate rooms in the flop house, right? I'll stay in this room and you stay in this room. And they're like hanging out with these like under underground the criminal elements a little bit, like some some guy who was bouncing checks or whatever. And it's really like her first um 
now we wouldn't think of it as a big deal. But I mean, this is 1934. She's going to be traveling with some dude, right? It's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a spicy thing to do, I think. Mm, yeah, um, I think so. And she mm-hmm. thought of it as being quite adventurous, and I, I think it probably yeah. is pretty adventurous, right? You're gonna. Do we know was she a city. smoker? I can kind of imagine her smoking cigarettes. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. She, mm-hmm. she definitely, she definitely yeah. was a smoker. Um, as college went on, she became more intensely socialist, right? So she became more and more radical as time went on. Um. She she one of her big assignments she did, I think, right before she left Syracuse or right when she got to NYU was to write a detailed review of Trotsky's memoir, My Life. And she began to identify as a as a, as a Trotskyite. Um, she apparently was because she was energetic and because she was smart, and because she was very conscientious. She was apparently a very good organizer. Um and so much so that later on a legend would grow about her that she was responsible for organizing this like wildcat labor strike in a lumber camp in the Pacific Northwest. And nobody can verify whether this is true or not. It's just kind of an interesting thing. It's a little five foot two, you know, crazy curly haired teenager coming out and like getting a bunch of lumberjacks together to do on strike. I, I did, doubt that. Did she happened. claim that it happened? Did she? She claim never she said anything. There? She never mm. said it did, but it became like a legend about her. So who knows uh, where that started? Mm. It's probably an exaggeration of something very. She probably wrote a letter to them or something, right? And it became right. Thing. But people right. believed it about her because she was so like energetic and intense, right? Right. right. Yeah, leftist um, uh, cred signaling really not has has not changed at all. No, not really. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. Yeah. No. So when she um. She uh, hooks up with this guy, Gregory, uh, what happened to his name? Bardecki. I think that's right. Gregory Bardecki, who she gets married to fairly young. I'd want to say 1939. Uh, Might have been 1938. Um, Anyway, she gets married to this guy who's like a dedicated socialist Trotskyite, right? Um, And they end up at NYU. Um, both of them are at NYU. He's working full time in the quote industrial department. It's basically you're just ba- he's basically working for the party, um, and she's working six hour days at the national office organizing the Young People's Socialist League. These are YPSL. these are commies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are not. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you keep no, saying totally. socialism, but these are full blown commies. Yeah, I think she. I think she would have avoided. I mean, these things. These these. These words get kind of their, their definitions vaguely shade in and out of each other. Right. I'm a Trotskyite. Right. I'm not right. this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so like you're a Trotskyite and then like five years later, you're like, oh, the Trotskyites are, you know, it's it's all gets Sure. Kind of, sure. So at any one point she's working, but she's technically she would probably be what we would call a communist now, but she's working for like the youth branch of the Socialist Party. Um. Um. And she was, so I'm going to read you a letter she wrote as as part of this role. She was. Are, the, are you telling me that a that a communist, a socialist, yeah. had an outsized influence on Hollywood in the history of yeah. cinema? Yeah, yeah. I know. I know you're picking your job off the floor, Kevin. <laughs> I was told. I yeah. was told other things. That's not what I was led to believe. But I'm yeah. glad. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Good yeah. to know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, it's interesting because uh, though I find the ideology questionable, 
Um, I do respect her. I respect her hustle. I kind of respect her hustle throughout her. Like she's very young and she's very rapidly rising, like through the ranks of the party, because a lot of people associated with the party. I'm going to say that a certain percentage of them, like any organization, aren't particularly competent. Right. And Maya, for any issue she may have, she is almost always the most competent person in the room. Right. And it doesn't matter if she's 17 years old. Like she's still probably better at whatever it is you're doing. She's probably better at it than you are. <laughs> right? I'm getting that impression. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read. Uh, and it's funny because later on, even like later on in her life, when she she tries to adopt this more free spirited artist kind of vibe, it's still like. She'll make a she'll make a film and there's hundreds of pages of notes about how to make the film as she's preparation. Right. But her she presentation is you at being like bohemian and artistic. Right. She's right. just so good at it. Yeah. Fun. Right. But but underneath it's like there are spreadsheets and tables and notes and stuff I read. And right. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, I want to I want to write. Uh, we're going to read about we're going to talk about the socialism stuff a little bit longer and then move on. But I want to read this letter um, she wrote because she was writing letters for the party to other groups. Right. Trying to get things organized. Um, and I just want to give you one letter just so you get the tone of it. <clears throat> She's writing to this guy in Seattle, Washington, <clears throat> uh, this guy, Jack Jaff or Jack Jaffe. Dear Comrade Jaffe, I was glad to finally hear from you, but I'm a bit disappointed at the situation which you describe exists in the university, right? This is another guy who's trying to organize students at a university. There is no excuse for the lack of Ypsil circles in the city. Ypsil is the young people's social... What is Ypsil again? I had it here. A young people's socialist league. Um, there is no excuse for the lack of Yipsil circles in the city. It is time that young members of the Socialist Party realize that the Yipsil has a function of its own, that it has to build itself, that it is not merely the handyman of the party. There's also no excuse for the fact that every single Yipsil and SP member in the university is not a member of the ASU. Um, that's the something student union. It's basically another student. It's a student group within the party. Such instructions were sent out before, and strictly speaking, it is a breach of discipline if the members have not joined. You might explain to the SP members that all socialists, whether they are also members of the YPSL or not, are under the discipline of the National Student Department of the YPSL in student work. According to this, there must not be any more delay before all socialists are members of the ASU, and more than that, that they are active in the organization. I do not see, however, how you can have any coordinated or effective action, either independent socialist or in the ASU, without getting at least a minimum, minimum of organization. Three socialists in one university can form a socialist league, which has a secretary who communicates with the National Student Department. This socialist league forms the nuclei for the socialist activities in the colleges. It holds educational meetings, supervises the sale of socialist literature, and tries in every way to further socialism in the university. Needless to say, the perspective of the Socialist League is to, through activity and education, recruit seven members and thus become a regular circle of the League. There are no more detailed directives that I can give from here. I have outlined a plan. It is up to you to work energetically and carry it out. Do you sell challenges regularly? regularly? It's a newsletter of theirs. For information on bundle orders, communicate with the National Office. Ypsil, uh, the 
the uh, Youth Fights War, which is a five cent Yipsil leaflet, is sweeping the country. You can order a bundle at two cents a piece wholesale for me. Start going on these things and you will find your group growing. Let me hear from you very soon on your progress. With socialist greetings, Eleanor Darren, National Student Secretary, April 27th, 1936 hyper intelligent internationalist socialists yeah. in the american universities brad it's, it's i'm i'm pointing to a whoa, 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 a, what? i'm pointing to a conspiracy that you may not be aware of I, unbelievable <laughs> i was told this is not the case right <laughs> what year was this this was 1936 i mean she's 19 well, thank years god old. we rousted them all or else the universities <laughs> really could have turned into some kind yeah. of a pernicious force right yeah i love that she's just sending this letter just hectoring some poor dude on the other it's side super of the country. impressive she's i mean yeah. she's basically saying get your act together let's yeah. go yeah mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and she's like she's calling him out. There's like no, it's not even polite, really. It's like, it's, it's what are firm. you doing? She's a yeah. she's a true believer. She is. That's what yeah. I'm pulling from this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And she's like, and I, I admire do... that. I admire that in practically any ideological. I can understand the, the, this hard leftist frame, and also the mm -hmm. time was very different. Mm -hmm. uh, the I was watching a documentary recently on Criterion about coal, you know coal miners in West Virginia and the working <laughs> conditions and yeah. leftism for whatever you think about it ideologically. They they have been able to pinpoint certain problems and have yeah, moved sure. the needle in certain ways so it's not all or nothing in in either direction yeah and i think uh, you think it's hard to put yourself in the shoes of the mid-1930s when mm, it, all of these things hadn't sh been shown obviously as failures either right right you know what i mean we did right now right. it's like this never Stalin, works we know right this doesn't right. work sure in 1936 yeah. you didn't have that track record necessarily right or it was in, a little yeah more ambiguous. right the gulag archipelago hadn't been written the soviet union was this standing counterforce against uh the united states capital right. anglo-american capitalist imperial blah blah yeah mm. right right so it's, yeah. just a, it's very different times so um she was also the big things she was involved in was this 1936 student strike, um, which I had never heard of, but it's kind of interesting. I'm just going to read this little part of it because she was apparently very involved in this. I'm not going to say she was it was such a big thing. Nobody one person was responsible for it, but like she was definitely contributing to this happening. What university um, is she at now? Is she at Syracuse now? She's at uh, she would or be NY at NYU now at NYU. OK, got it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, Okay, so this is from actually the Holocaust Museum website. I was just looking for a summary of the strike, and so this is the best one I could find. Um, quote, some American college students responded to the rise of Nazism by organizing protests and demonstrations. The American Student Union, ASU, we were talking about them in the letter, uh, a nationwide organization of socialists and communists founded in 1935, was especially active in campaigning against the emergence of fascism across Europe. After its founding, the ASU also joined an ongoing effort to oppose U.S. interventions in conflicts abroad. The group organized a yearly strike in April to mark the anniversary of the U.S. entrance into World War I in April 1917. As part of this annual effort, the ASU organized a one-hour-long student strike on April 22, 1936. During this protest, roughly 500,000 students across the U.S. left their classes and joined demonstrations, usually featuring speakers on a variety of topics. While the metropolitan New York area had the most participants, that's where uh, that's where Maya was, 
uh, strikes took place across inst- uh, across the country at institutions including Texas Christian University, Purdue, University of California, LA, and five hundred uh, and five hundred American universities total participated in the event. Right, so this is a big deal. Nineteen mid nineteen thirties, nineteen thirty six. You had a huge student protest, right, um, protesting the rise of fascism, um, launched primarily by socialists and communists, embedded at American colleges, Maya Deren being one of them. Um, now, by 1937, she'd, she'd gotten married to this guy, Gregory Bardacki. I don't have a whole lot on him, except he was a true believer, and he would go on working in socialist and communist causes for years. But by 1937, uh, her and her husband, uh, Gregory, are breaking up, largely because he's traveling the country all the time. Like, he's ba- never around, really. He's traveling, working for the party. Um, in 1937, that summer, Maya puts together a summer socialism school in Casanova, New York, right? 1937, she's 20 years old. She puts together this, this school. You're going to come and learn like socialist stuff. Uh, uh, I just think it's interesting. And this is the Finger Lakes sort of region, right? Um, uh, at this time, Maya had an affair with this guy, um, who would become, uh, Herbert Passan, who would become Dr. Herbert Passan, who was a, a, a who would become a big deal University of Chicago anthropologist. Um, and, and it's just kind of an interesting note, just this early marriage is kind of falling apart. She probably, you know, they probably didn't, you know, it's one of these things, got married very young. Sometimes that works out great. Other times, not so well, right? Um, starting around 1939, Maya starts to get disillusioned first with the direction of Trotsky of of the Trotskyites and then sort of over time gets disinterested in socialism and communism and politics jet more generally. Um, and that's this starts to this starts to fall apart right around 1939. Um, interestingly, just a note about this Herbert passing guy, his main his main body of work like what he became most well known for was he was an anthropologist in japan during world war ii and i think what like what was that you're an american working in japan as an anthropologist during world war ii like i don't even know what that means exactly like that's a kind of a crazy thing to be doing um uh, by 1939 she's uh received an ma in literature from smith college um and is that one of the this, smith one of the seven sisters i believe that's that i believe that's right it's yeah. it's an all all girls school in massachusetts okay yeah it um, appears to be yeah yeah, yeah. wow um, she is precocious she's getting she's, around yes yes i'm going to read you this little bit about her sort of moving out of socialism slash communism slash trotsky ism is that how you say it? Trotskyism? Yeah. Um, I think so. When did yeah. they assassinate Trotsky? Uh, I don't know. I don't have that handy. I'm going to think... look it up. It looks like it yeah. was 1940 in Mexico City. Okay. Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think it was in Coyacan. Yeah, I knew it was in Mexico. I just, yeah, I wasn't quite sure on the year. <clears throat> um, okay. So this is again from, uh, this is from the legend of Maya Deren, a quote from, uh, just talking about her getting away from all of the politics. Eleonora Duren drifted away from the Trotskyists, Trotskyists in 1938. Three ex-Trotskyists, uh, a seaman, a translator, and a poet, tell in this section of their encounters with her toward the end of the decade. By 1938, three years after her initiation to politics, Eleonora's activism had been transformed from the radical to the theoretical to the literary. 
1943, she seemed almost apolitical to her former friends in the movement. The evolution in her commitment was prompted largely by the character of world events, but also by changes in her family situation. Uh, Russia's behavior in 1938 was considered imperialist by Eleonora and other radicals who denounced the fatherland for its actions. The invasion of Finland and the mockery that had been the Moscow show trials served increasingly to alienate her. Add to these occurrences the fact of her parents' separation, her father's remarriage to a student of his, and we have some understanding of emotions she may have been experiencing as the 30s waned. So yeah, I just kind of thought this, you know, that's interesting. It's sort of a youthful outburst kind of thing. I think a lot of young people have... There's like a, something like a messianic tendency or a save the world tendency. And you, you know, you don't have the yeah, wisdom to know where to put that energy, but you have it. Right. So right. But that's also there. perennially leftist and also what everybody is that expected to write on their applications to university. Now, how are you going right. to change the world? That's a good point. Right. It's, it's yeah. not enough to just be like, I need this paper so I can right. feed my family. Right. <laughs> I yeah. need yeah. It, it. It has to be about a grander thing. Yeah, yeah. no, that's that's very true. It's like you're supposed to have, uh, yeah, for every 100 students, 90 of them are supposed to save the world somehow. Right. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. It's a, it's a say it's how they reinforce this the paternalism of the left and the savior complex that mm -hmm. is just the bread and butter of the um uh, the upper middle class. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she was, she was part of it. But as she, you know, she was, I think, smart enough to see the ways in which it was hollow. Um, and and you know, she moved out of pretty. I mean, she's 1939. I'm, she's done. She's 22. She's. Done I'm impressed. Right. I mean, she, yeah. she's an impressive young woman who's already mm -hmm. lived quite a a wild life. I'm very mm -hmm. excited to see what's going to happen when she pivots my pivot into yeah. uh filmmaking yeah 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 we're almost we're almost we're getting and there. voodoo yeah right which is uh, a big part of her career yeah this is completely that i have no idea how we're gonna get there so i can't yeah, wait to this see is how what, you this is mm. what was so interesting is i like hitting all these parts we're hitting on like socialism and communism in the 30s right early film and voodoo like we're going it's taking us in really interesting spots i feel like just historically we're kind of following a particular thread of history as we follow Maya. Um, she, you know, so at Smith, she finds this as a difficult transition. Um, she's coming out of the political and in, again into the sort of theoretical and literary. The 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 activism. I, I hate to say this. She's too intellectual for the activism. I think is the thing, and and that doesn't. That's not like an IQ thing. I think she's more interested in ideas. And aesthetics than she is in actual political cha political change, right? Um, so she kind of refines herself as a poet at Smith College. Um, she also kind of starts to re-identify herself. She starts um, designing her own clothes and making her ah, own clothes, right? Cool, very very hit. Um, and she's basically decides that she's going to teach herself to become an artist at this point at Smith College, you know, giving up socialism, giving up politics and going into the g becoming an artist, going out on that adventure. Right. Um, I've got this bit I want to read from uh, Incomplete Control by Sarah Keller again. Um, <clears throat> quote, Darren also embarked on other writing projects in her pre-cinematic period, something she did not give up after turning to filmmaking. Her first husband, Gregory Bardacki, Remembered her career goals just after they married in 1935 as being focused on writing. 
Writing was her goal at that point. She was very serious about it. She would do anything at all, almost anything at all, to promote her career. During this period, uh, Darren wrote a wide range of journalism, attempted several short stories, and penned at least one detective novel, as well as planning other creative and collaborative projects. The journalism in particular provided uh, a backdrop for Darren's persistence in placing articles on the cinema in magazines and journals, as well as her ability to make connections. She tended to reach out to those who could teach her something or otherwise assist her in her pursuits, right? So there's, I think, another thing we see in the split from the... the uh, I think you, you can see this often. People will kind of leave the socialist or communist tendency for one reason or another. I think one of them, for Maya, is she is an intensely individual person, right? I was just going to say, she's done saving the world and now right. it's time for some me time. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. 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 Perfect. So she, um, there's, she, she's does really well at Smith college though. She doesn't fit into the social milieu very well. She doesn't have a lot of friends at Smith college, but, but she's intellectually invigorated and stimulated. Um, there's uh yeah let me read this part um because i want to talk about she's very interested in poetry she's not interested in film at all yet right and i want to talk about how she bridges one to the next how she bridges poetry to film this is again from incomplete control quote whether in transcribing images from the imagination or as maya insists elsewhere from reality itself Darren eventually homes in on the idea of bringing nonverbal thoughts and perceptions, the domain of the imagination and image, more directly to the screen. This is a quote from Maya now. Fortunately, this is the way my mind works, and I could move directly from my imagination onto film. Okay, now this is not her talking anymore. Once Maya begins to identify as a filmmaker in earnest, poetry um, for Darren becomes a sort of poor man's cinema. She had been trying to use poetry to accomplish what cinema is able to do naturally, build meaning through images. Her faith in images may also explain the complete non-verbality of her films. No mm. one ever talks in a Maya Deeran film, ever. Wow. Right. Um, yeah. Now, uh, she did her, her thesis, her MA thesis was on something about the influence of French symbolist poetry on American poetry. Um, and I just going to read again from Incomplete Control. Quote, her chapters on the history and theories of the symbolist and imagist movements culminate in a final chapter on Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot, two poets who strongly condition her thinking. Darren was drawn to po Pound's insistence on directness and to his later upheaval of the imagist credo through vortices forms in their emphasis on movement and collision. Her interpretation of Eliot fixes on the relationship of symbolist aesthetics and classicism to his work. An interest in the subjectivity of an emotional response to art takes a prominent role here. Eliot influenced subjectivity, to which Darren is drawn, retains the imagist, imagist's directness while representing subjectivity as a specific perspective on being in the world that may then serve as a relay from artist to audience. Darren sketches a movement from the personal to the objective and back to a place in the middle that balances both without le losing either. Um, the reason I really want to read those kinds of things is not so much to sort of interrogate them. What I want to make the point of, especially as Maya Deeran's presence itself, her physical presence, being in the room with her, her being on screen, comes off as an artistic performance that 
below that sort of presentation of herself, there is real thoughtful intellectual practice occurring. It's it's very thoughtful. She's very deliberate, right? And even when she runs off, as we'll see, even when she runs off to Haiti to try and figure out voodoo, it's not like, oh, this will be a wild adventure. It's a very thoughtful she she'd gotten some sense of what was going on down there. She kind of wanted to go see it for herself. And as we'll see, she had some very um she had some very carefully thought through theses about what she was going to do down there. Now, when those actually hit the ground, things changed. But but she's a very serious, she takes things very, very seriously and doesn't make a move without thinking about it in depth, right? It comes over even in the smattering that I watched of that one film, you can tell that there's a lot of thought and depth and every frame is considered and mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. But we're not making movies quite yet, right? We're going to get there soon. <clears throat> so uh, after Smith college, Maya goes to Greenwich, grows to Greenwich village for a while. This is 1939. <clears throat> She's getting to know more of the scene. She would become friends with this woman, uh, Galka Shire, um, Galka Shire is a, she's this, she brought the, um, who are called the, these guys called the blue four, two names I knew, uh, Paul Klee and, uh, Kandinsky, but also Feininger and Jalinsky, these four artists, she sort of brought them into prominence and was sort of like a, a Peggy Guggenheim figure who was like, you should be paying attention to these guys. Um, Maya knew Gal ended up knowing Galka pretty well. Um, Maya's making a living uh, in the 30s, mostly doing freelance writing for radio shows and foreign language newspapers. She also provides editorial uh, assistance for Ida Lou Walton, uh, Max Eastman, who I referred to earlier, and William Saybrook. For folks who may not know who William Saybrook is, William Saybrook is one of the first. I don't know if he's one of the first. He's a guy who went to Haiti before anybody else, almost, in terms of a white guy right a, a, a european guy um and and wrote about it and like participated in a cannibalistic right at some point somewhere in the western hemisphere i didn't do a bunch of research on him but he's 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 one of these anthropological adventurers who kind of was doing it before there were like ethical standards in place and so it's not sure gonzo anthropology that was william saybrook for sure whoa yeah and when, by the time he was done there was a lot of like i don't think that's how you should do that there's like a lot of you could have a little cannibalism right as a treat <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yeah yeah yikes right um and and um anyway also this thing that kind of started at smith college so she gets out of communism and she gets into smith college and she's becoming an artist and she's redefining how she appears right and this involves the hairs getting wilder the handmade clothes are getting more and more sort of idiosyncratic. Her attitude is getting sharper. She's getting more ferocious and she's getting energy. And part of this is, I mean, there's, I think, a thing that I think we see happening with Maya. She's the smartest person in the room most of the time. And if you do that for long enough, at some point, you just start going like, oh, this is mine, right? Like, I'm just going to do what I think to do because I've been right and everybody else is you know what i mean it, it's not even necessarily resentful but at some point you come around and you're like it, it, impatience just becomes pure will right right you're exactly. just like i'm not i'm not putting up with any of it 
right. I don't, so, I don't even want to hear. Yeah. You be, this is how an auteur is made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't yeah. have any time for, I don't even have any time. You know, maybe right. I'll make room for some of your ideas if you prove yourself to be competent. But to begin, right. we're going right. to execute what I want to right. execute. Right. This is and how you get a Kubrick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is what we see by about 1940. This is how Maya is starting to be. That's how she's starting to live in the world. Now, she takes this interesting... um, 1940, she decides that she's going to move to Los Angeles. Um, Basically, she wants to just kind of check the scene out there. She'd heard that there were, excuse me, some cool things going on out there. She's going to work on her photography. She's going to work on her poetry. Um. But it's not long before she basically goes to this woman, Catherine Dunham, and says, give me a job. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the name Catherine Dunham, Kevin. That rings a bell at all. Um, yeah, it does. I mean, it yeah. slightly rings a bell, but nothing yeah. concrete. Yeah, she is. A, I didn't know anything about her. She is a big she was a big deal. And I think she's important in 20th century pop cultural history. She was one of the most successful uh, American dancers of the 20th century. She would be known as, quote, the matriarch and queen mother of black dance. Okay. She's born in Chicago. Uh, she graduated University of Chicago, right, as a black woman, I think in the 20s. Um, uh, she then started up a dance troupe that would tour all over the world and for three decades was the was the only self-supported black dance troupe in the world, Right. And she did this all basically on her own. She was choreographing it, right? She she was running the business. And as it got more successful, obviously, she's farming out some of the delegating some of the stuff. But this is Catherine Dunham's thing. Mm. She's doing Mm -hmm. it. And she's not she's not the front of some financed enterprise, right? That somebody else is producing. It's a Catherine Dunham thing. And she's she's rocking it. And so Maya basically goes to her and says, You want me to work for you. I should work for you. And she'd had some, she had some editorial assistance jobs. So she, she knew how to be like a, a, an assistant. And also Maya was, was a pretty good dancer, apparently. Um, and she had a pretty, a pretty, she it was pretty musically sensitive. And there was even some suggestion that she might dance in the dance troupe. Um, that ended up not quite being a good fit, but Catherine Dunham was very impressed by Maya. And so for a while, Maya was touring around with Catherine Dunham as like an assistant. That's just part of the helping out the show, um, helping to get financing at times and things like that. Um, and so it's just kind of a cool, just the kind of a cool moment, right? Um, now, Catherine Dunham also wasn't just a dancer. Catherine Dunham was sort of like Zora Neale Hurston. She had been an anthropologist at the university. Uh, she'd gotten a degree in anthropology from the University of Chicago. She'd met Alan Lomax, the great, you know, invaluable American ethnomusicologist. She was a friend of Zora Neale Hurston. And she had, Catherine Dunham had, uh, on her own, she toured the Caribbean with her dance troupe. And then she would do these little anthropological field investigations on the side. So she'd go and she'd do a show at night. And during the day, she would go out and, you know, try to un- get, you know, put together some data for an article or something like that. So hmm. very interesting. Yeah. Busy very bee. Interesting woman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see how Maya would have been impressed by her, right? Just like, just like, oh, she's like me, right? She's, she's, you know, electric and ener- energetic and she's, you know, she's going to do the thing. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit from Catherine Dunham about Maya. <clears throat> Uh, quote, Maya could have been a dancer. Uh, and then Catherine Dunnan tells this story about how Maya was a sort of, she was this assistant and she was, uh, she, she, they put on this show for these Hollywood people, right? 
Catherine Dunham's show, uh, Dance Troupe, put on a show. And they were going to try to get some funding or, or try to get linked up, maybe get put into a movie or something. I mean, this is the this is the late 30s, early 40s. There's a lot of musical films. And Catherine Dunham would end up being in a couple. And so they're doing a show with some Hollywood people. And Maya sits down next to these Hollywood producer types. And Maya, remember, striking looking. Uh, she's what, 1939, 1940. She's in her early 20s. She's uh, buxom. I would say. And she's sitting next to these Hollywood producers while the show is going on in a low cut shirt. And she's sort of dancing and shucking and jiving. And she's sort of pushing that energy out on them. Right. And sort of like, how can you sit still while this, while this, all this is happening. Right. And according to Catherine, Catherine Dunham says, who knows, maybe she helped us get our Hollywood position. Like Catherine thinks we might've got this whole thing. And there was movies and stuff that happened after this because of Maya's, just sort of energy and vivaciousness and sexiness, right? Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah, once again, nothing changes. No, not really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, if you yeah. got it, use it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. And it's not like she, it's not like a sleeping your way to the top situation either, right? Yeah, it's no. Like, right. Yeah, she's yeah. just attractive and just want to be around her. energy. Yeah. 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 Um, around uh, while touring with Dunham, Maya meets this guy, uh, Alexander. Hockenschmied, who would later change his name to Alex Hamid. He is a Czech photographer um, who had uh, mig- had come to the United States and, in, sorry, he'd come to the United States, I think, in 1938. And he'd mostly been a photographer up until that time. And he was sort of respected in, in, in uh, you know, in, in, the, in his homeland and was trying to get himself established in the United States. He was starting to play around with film. Um, they got married almost immediately upon meeting. So they, I think they met in 1941. They get married in 1942. Maya apparently just is, married people. At least this is what I'm talking about. This is like, I don't have any patience for this. We're getting married. Yeah. You and me. We're just getting, we're getting married. married. We're going to live together. Right. It's yeah, it's, right. it's subtle. Let's just cut to the chase here. Yeah. 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 Now, interestingly, as opposed to Maya's, who I think we're starting to get a sense of what her energy is. Alex is this very sweet, sensitive, very precise, very kind of grounded kind of guy. Right. Hmm. Um, in 1943, Solomon, Maya's father, passes away, leaves behind a little bit of money, which Maya promptly spends on a 16 millimeter Bolex. And together, her and Alex made Meshes of the Afternoon, the film that 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 you started to watch. Um, they make this in and around their apartment in California. Um, and then so cool. That yeah. I'm sorry, that's just so cool. Yeah. That no, DIY. You have a vision. Well, you can do is, it. Do it, people. You can do I it. You love. can do it now. Yep. You can do it now. This is part of the thesis of this show, or not the thesis. The motivation yeah. of this show is to remind you, you can do it. Mm-hmm. You can do it now. You can do it yourself. Yeah. Go, go, go. Yeah. No, and I love, I love seeing people who have now, in hindsight, have huge reputations, considered tremendous legendary successes. And you look back at the very start, and it's just them and a whatever, an instrument, a camera, a typewriter, whatever it is. I mean, we saw in the Virginia Woolf episode, Virginia Woolf was a self-published writer. Yeah. Full stop, right? right? right. Now she's on right. like the Mount Rushmore of literary modernism, right? And so, yes. you know, yes, you don't get the, the, yeah, there's there's a lot of factors that go into deciding. No excuses. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Now, 
they make this film meshes of the afternoon. And at first, I mean, there's no distribution network for any of this stuff. And we're going to, we're going to talk more about that in a minute because shortly after they make this film, they move back to New York. Uh, Alex is working in the war information office. I mean, we're talking 1943, 1944, right? So we're getting into world war two. I shouldn't say we're getting into, we're in world war two. We're in the getting into the third act. Right. Right. Um, they move into this apartment that Maya would live in for the rest of her life uh, on Morton Street in the village. Um, they'd stay married until 1947. Um, he would help her with several films. He was really, the film he was most involved with was Meshes of the Afternoon. As time went on, she, he was less and less involved. And she was deliberately sort of not in a resentful way, but kind of tried to peel away from him because she wanted to make sure if something was made with her name that people couldn't later say, oh, really, it was her husband that made it. And there's some conversation about Meshes of the Afternoon about that because most of the time he was holding the camera in Meshes of the Afternoon, right? She can't shoot herself walking down the down the street, right? Um, uh, yeah, so... Now, is around this time, around the making of Meshes of the Afternoon, just before, where she changed her name. She'd been Eleonora or Elinka up until this time. <clears throat> um, according to Alex Hamid, her husband at the time, she had asked him to come up with a name for her. And so he had like gone to the library. He's like, well, I don't know what to do. He had gone <laughs> to the library and like looked up just tried to find a name that resonated somehow. And eventually he comes across Maya. Um, Maya has a bunch of different meanings and he's basically implying that it means all of them. Uh, one is it's the name for in, in Buddhism, it's the name of the illusion of the world yes, that we live indeed. in. Indeed. Yeah. Mara or, or Maya. Maya. Yeah. 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 And so why, why did mean, I think Mara? Uh, maybe, it might maybe be it is Mara. Maya. It might be yeah. Mara in some dialect. Uh, the Mara, Mara is the uh, the demon that tempted the yeah. Buddha. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maya yeah. is and the like Maya is invoked as one of twenty subsidiary unwholesome mental factors. Maya, the mother of the Buddha. Well, it's well, also the case. mother too. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's another yeah. thing. So the mother of the Buddha was was Queen Maya of Shakya or Maya Devi. Um, I'm looking right now in early Buddhism, Maya referred to the deceptive nature of the ego and its perception of the world of appearances and forms. Very isn't interesting. That, isn't that interesting that the mother, his mother's name and that are the same? Mm, it it's, is. Doesn't, it's just kind of curious. Like calling Dr. Freud, right? Mm, Dr. Freud, the art of darkness podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about Maya, please? <laughs> um, oh, also- we've got some good, we've got some good stuff coming for you here on season three of art of darkness. Yeah. And we, I don't think we're doing Freud this year, but I think in season four, 2020, are, we're not doing Freud, are we? No, Freud's not on the list for, for season three. No, but I, I do think, think in season year- and I, I don't mean to disrupt your flow, Brad, but I actually, do think why don't you talk about four. a couple episodes? Yeah, yeah. I'll take a bathroom break. Get it going. Yeah. Go uh, do what you got to do there, Brad. I can I can cover for a minute. I got my I got my stack of books here for my upcoming Hemingway episode with the great Aaron Gwynn. I have so many Hemingway books. I must have 15 of them. I'm very excited about that. Uh, I was just going to say, I think on season four which would be 2024. So uh, a good while from now, but time flies when you're making podcasts. I think we're going to do uh, a one-two punch where I might do Freud 
And then Brad does Jung. It might be like a two-part uh, special. I don't know. We'll we'll figure it out. It's going to be a lot of fun. Just a reminder that we have a book club for Patreon patrons. We did our first uh, book club meeting over Zoom. Uh, we did Heart of Darkness, of course, our uh, from which we derive our name, uh, and that tied into the Conrad episode that Brad did. We're getting ready to read the hilarious novel by friend of the pod, Dan Baltic, Nutcranker, on March 12th. If you join Patreon, you'll get all the information, all the details. You can go to artofdarkpod.com slash book dash club and find everything you need there. The complete list uh, is... Well, we already did Heart of Darkness. It's going to be Nutcranker, Ficciones from Borges, All God's Children from Aaron Gwynn, The Complete Poems of Emily Dickinson. We're going to read Brad's book because I strong-armed him. We're going to read House of Sleep. Then we're going to read Confessions of a Mask from Mishima. And finally, we are going to get into Blood Meridian. Uh, the date is TBD. That's going to be a lot of fun. I think we're going to try to get Aaron Gwynn on for that. He has a an outstanding breakout substack going. That's all about Blood Meridian, but of course, it's about so much more. As you can see, if you follow follow that and follow him, please support the the pod. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. We genuinely appreciate it. And this is, what are we, I don't know, we're heading into hour three here, Brad, mm -hmm. on this core episode about Maya Deeran. We, we just got into the name. Mm -hmm. uh, so fascinating stuff. I'm having yeah. a really great time. The, the one thing that I wanted you to hear, uh, Brad, while you went up and uh, yeah. did your business is, I think I think in season four, we, we really got to do a Freud, Freud Jung. I think so. Yeah. Hair I think the time episodes. has come. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel and like there, there's a... Uh, mm -hmm. They're, they're so influential. I mean, people will say, well, they're not really artists, but they're so influential on so many artists that it's they're, like, yeah, they count. They're, they're easy, yeah. easy subjects yeah. for Art of Darkness. And yeah. what, what Freud was doing was highly fabulistic. And and well, Jung, Jung was simply sort of admitting it. And, and yeah. in any <laughs> case, yeah. we'll get yeah. into it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Cool. So yeah, so so a couple other things under name. So we said the realm of illusion, also the the mother of the Buddha, but we've also got meanings from in Latin that are kind of large or great. Apparently, I don't I don't know Latin. Um, uh, there's also a, a meaning in Hebrew of Maya, which is water. Also, Maya apparently was the mother of of Hermit of Hermes and the lover of Zeus. Right, so. So Alex Hamid had found this name Maya and it was like, oh my God, it's hitting all these like, it's so rich, right? With, with possible references. Um, they're in New York, early 40, early to mid 40s, wartime in the 40s in Greenwich Village. And she very quickly, though she'd been there before and she'd made some friends, she's sort of doubling down on that. And she's becoming a, 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 a big figure in this sort of, the emigre, emigre artistic community, right? She, everybody knows who Maya Deren is after a while. Again, she's wearing, she's wearing clothes she's made herself, but she's started to really adopt this European folk kind of look. And interestingly enough, um, she'd wear these like embroidered blouses that she would wear kind of off the shirt, off the shoulder. And she would wear what they call the dirndl skirt. And then she, big poofy hair, and this is this would eventually become like fashionable in the mm. 50s New York. It's like a right. proto flower child thing. And she's mm. doing it in the 40s, right? So 
not to say that she was the like was the influence on this, but it is interesting that her personal style was a precursor to what a lot of people were wearing a decade later, right? Mm, it's kind of right. kind mm. of interesting sort of thing, right? She's basically a flower child in the 40s in appearance. Um, she would become good friends with uh, Duchamp, who was much older than her, but they would become good friends. Um, at the time they'd met, he'd supposedly given up on art in favor of chess. Uh, and he was past the, you know, he was past the, the urinal and all of those things is sort of the most provocative part of his career, but he was a sort of an elder stuff. He was weirdly enough, an elder statesman of the avant-garde, right? Where do you go from the urinal? You can't yeah, top right? it. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> I mean, you're basically saying like, uh, I don't. Really, I don't really want to get too far into what Duchamp was trying to do, but there is there is an element of it that's sort of saying like there's nowhere else for art to go, kind of right. Um, yeah. So then, what do you do after that, right? You just go back to like oil, like watercolor painting. I don't know. Um, now, Maya and Duchamp had a few commonalities, but intellectually, where their their real sort of um, the spark between them was, they were both very suspicious of of surrealism as a movement of capital S surrealism. Um, they both thought it was too inadequate and that it was sort of purposeless. They didn't think it had a, it really had a, a, a it, they didn't really think it had guts to it. Um, they also both had similar ideas yeah, about, you could, you could make the argument that surrealism was a bit of a wank. Yeah. You see it sometimes and you go, okay, I see yeah. what you I see what you're doing here. It's a bit of a bit of a gimmick, bit of a, a shtick at times. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I admire it. I'm I mean, I'm a, yeah. a bit of a philistine when it comes to uh, fine art uh, and, sure. and the visual arts, but you know, but it's also like as a movement, there are going to be great pieces, and then there's just going to be like, right. okay, all right, this is a yeah. well, certainly, I'm sure they would have, even though they were suspicious, I'm sure they would have made a distinction between the sort of the great artworks of the genre and the lesser right mm -hmm. i'm sure they sure. would have noticed the difference between those two um, right uh now this relationship with oh they also maya and he had very similar ideas about the relationship of between art and the commercial and just commerce right um and she's really gonna i think understand this and we're gonna understand this about her when we get to haiti but um, she, I mean, she's one of her famous quotes is Hollywood spent, um, I make my movies for what Hollywood spends on lipstick, right? She was very much about the, I, I love, I love that. I, that's yeah. one thing I love about Vanner Herzog, not mm -hmm. that he's low budget per mm -hmm. se, but right. that it's just so intense mm -hmm. and yeah. 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 I love that philosophy of it. The ethic is just, yeah. yeah. I, I'm I all, share I, that. I share that philosophy in theater. I, so mm -hmm. I, yeah. In any yeah. case. Yeah. No, there's a certain, there is a certain, there's a certain intensity and there's a certain, you know, we could talk for a long time about this, about like, you know, how much we used to have a thing called selling out. And, yes. And it used to get scorned for selling out and now nobody cares anymore. I can't and, remember the last time I've heard that phrase used. It would sound strange to accuse mm -hmm. somebody of selling out now. It's so strange. I think I think we've all just <laughs> accepted that the algorithm is so totalizing. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to do? The best thing you can achieve is to kind of do that. Like we're all already sold out to this machine 
in a funny way about the only way you can register is by being wiped out mm-hmm. from from it by being deplatformed we talk about mm-hmm. now and mm-hmm. hitherto it would have been by selling out you would have been platformed right. now it's just the de facto water that we swim in yeah find us on youtube friends yeah YouTube. that's right please at art of dark pod yeah i guess <laughs> i'm selling out like what does it even of? mean yeah it's strange isn't it yeah Yeah. well well there is an interesting thing that happens when we do it feels like everybody has been it feels like we've all been sold out and so bingo uh, i at least better get paid like it's kind (laughs) of right right sucks if i'm going to be sold out but nobody there there are still figures who can kind Mm -hmm. of position themselves as um anti-establishment in a way where if they did certain things it would be a move i'm not going to name names but in any case it's just not the it's not part of the that discourse kind of vanished with the the advent of the internet really from from the 90s that went away kind of at post napster I think like right. Metallica, and I and I'm a, I'm a Metallica fan, but mm. I think Metallica were the last great sellouts. Like they were the mm. they were the they were when selling out peaked. Right, uh, right, right, right. Nowhere right. to go from there anymore. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Even My, though, and again, I and I think I think Metallica, they're you know they're great, but yeah, no, I, I yeah, every 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 creative person or you know entity, you you, you face your own decisions, and I, I'm not, but. It, positioning we're probably dating ourselves a little bit here too because oh, this a gen is X, what it's a gen x ethic gen x slash millennials yeah. like the cusp of it like that yeah. this was a discussion yeah. like if somebody if somebody judged that a band that you liked had sold out it was like you took it personally no if like Soundgarden showed up in a nike commercial it was like whoa what right are you guys right doing? that's a great point that's exactly yeah. it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. You wouldn't it, they would lose credibility yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. 100%. And now it'd be like, nobody would care. It'd be like, oh, they did it. You'd be like, good for them or getting their money. Yeah. yeah. yeah Which, yeah. And, and there's a sensibility to both of them. Whatever the case, Maya Deeran would rather die than sell out. That's her vibe. Cool. So, so I'm good. good with that. I'm good with that. I dig I'm it. Good with that. I dig I'm glad it. that somebody has that attitude. Maybe not everybody has to have it, but somebody's got it. Um, I want to talk briefly about this film, <laughs> which is Cradle, that's technically not finished, but I think it tells us how well she was positioned in the in the in the community so um she's working on this project that she didn't want uh alex hamid to be involved right <clears throat> um she's become friends with she's become friends with marcel duchamp and uh peggy guggenheim who's just opened this uh gallery called the art of this century gallery which was a big deal in the pollock was involved in that wasn't he uh i'm not sure because there's several different guggenheim in like establishments and i'm not sure who was involved in which one i do think pollock was involved in this one but i think it was a little later than my adherence involvement mm, okay. maybe <laughs> um but anyway, this is Greenwich Village. This is like we are we are artists, right? This is like the hub of American avant-garde art. And Maya's right there. She's friend, she's friends with Duchamp, right? Um, so she decides she's gonna make this next film in the gallery, in the art of the century gallery. Um, and because the gallery itself is kind of this art piece, right? This is when they started this thinking, maybe not started, but this is around the time they started thinking, well, maybe the gallery itself is an artistic object right and then you put you know you put other art pieces in as a complement to them um the film which is cradle is not complete um 
There are some outtakes. I've watched the outtakes. They're interesting. It does seem like a, it's a little bit of a just a tour around looking at different art objects. It feels a little derivative of some things Marsh, uh, Duchamp was doing at the time, but it's interesting. Um, and it definitely tells you who Maya knew and what her context was at the time, right? Um, there's this great, there's this thing, uh, it's so weird. There's a, there's a, the main character in Witch's Cradle is this woman who has basically a pentagram on, on her, drawn on her head. And in a circle around it, it's written, the end is the beginning is the end is the beginning is the end is the beginning, right? And Maya was obsessed with this idea of, of ending on the same note you started with. And, and just what can you do, right? How can you make these things feel very cyclical? Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, pretty interesting stuff. That's very um, uh, interesting. Yeah. Very kind of au courant in a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm hmm. I'm finding myself this whole the end is the beginning. I'm finding myself slightly influenced by it. In, in my own work, I'm kind of thinking like, huh. I should just keep that in mind while I'm working. Mm. Not that I'm going to try to do that necessarily, but there is something, there's some zhuzh there for well, sure. Well, and there's a very famous uh, formulaic way to write uh, screenplays now that is, I don't know if how fashionable it is even now, but the whole Save the Cat book, there's a structure where you want your opening image to somehow mirror your final image, either thematically or quite literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mm-hmm. You can notice it in cinema. Um mm-hmm happening again and again yeah yeah for sure um a couple other things that are in this film uh there's an exposed human heart which is sort of like almost like a special effect there's a bunch of occult symbols and ritual Mm. kind of imagery Mm. um and then generally everything maya does is she's trying to attain this sort of like not surrealism but she is definitely going for that quality of the dreamlike right so Mm. her editing and her angles are all to be slightly disorienting um she's yeah she's she's she savors the ambiguous for sure um uh the next film she makes after that is actually a film she completed um it's the one that i kind of like the most out of out of her films it's called at land it's two separate words at and land um i'm just gonna read you a bit um about this um so the girl in the film is a personage so this starts out well hold on i'll I'll get there she is uh the girl in the film is a person uh personage this is my dear and she's again the star of her own film right and partially this is for artistic reasons partially this is for budgetary reasons right she doesn't have to pay herself (laughs) right um she is this folkloric mythological kind of figure and the film starts maya is washed ashore on the beach and the waves are actually there's this cool part where she 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 runs the footage of the waves in reverse and it's a very as they're kind of coming off of her sort of and it feels like she's been like presented onto land by the ocean right Mm. and it's interesting because meshes in the afternoon ends on she's throwing these mirror fragments into the ocean right now she's being washed up onto the ocean um then she climbs up in this very compellingly composed scene. She climbs up and she's very, she's looking very fit at this time. She climbs up onto this piece of driftwood. And as she climbs up to the top of the driftwood, 
she pulls herself over the top and she's pulling herself over the top of a table where there's a dinner party happening. Right. So there's just this edit that's just like going into a different realm entirely. Um, It's just a bunch of people sitting around a table enjoying themselves in a kind of a semi formal environment. And then she crawls along the table. They don't notice her as she's crawling up the table. And then sometimes she's in trees. And then when she comes, she comes to the end of it. There's a chess game going on where she moves some of the pieces with her mind. Fun. <laughs> Interesting. I need to watch wild. this. It's at pretty wild. Is it what? Is it 10, 15 minutes it's, long? It's on that range. It's a little shorter than Meshes of the Afternoon, I wow. think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a little more ambitious because there's more people involved and more like more settings. Um, but yeah, it's about the same. Um, then a piece falls off this chessboard that's at the dinner table and then it falls down a gully and like where these like like down a cliff, basically. Um and then she's suddenly she's, you know, walking down this two track road and then she's at a sort of this kind of cottage. And then she she's well, she was walking down the two track road with this man um, and they end up at a cottage. She follows follows him to a cottage. She crawls under the house and comes up into a space that is a quite this very nice room somewhere else. Right. So every time there's like a transition of environment, it's a completely different place. And this is one thing she was she thought was amazing about film was you could do this with the edit. Sure, you can tell a a, a continuous story with the edit, and and uh, there's been much ink spilled about how you use editing in storytelling for continuity and making sure that like you're transmitting certain, um, you know, for an audience for a for a lay audience very subtle indications about how to follow the action for somebody who really knows film it's obvious what's happening and maya is basically saying like well you what happens when you radically displace what happens between cuts right and it's it's disorienting but you also still follow it immediately somehow like the idea that when she's climbing up driftwood and then the next it snap smash you know it cuts to her being at a dinner party that your mind follows exactly what happened, even though it's completely mm-hmm. discontinuous, right? Right. Um, yeah, it's a symbolic juxtaposition. Concept. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The language of cinema and yeah. Uh, yeah. disrupting realism and yeah. reminding you that it's an illusion. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so she, so this kind of continues through a sort of the sequence of things. And at some point she comes to a chess, a chess game being played uh, at the beach, at the very, at the beach basically where she landed interestingly enough i mean this is the this is it looks sort of like the chess game in seventh seal uh not exactly i mean it's not death playing but but it there's a vibe there's a there's a similar composition, composition yeah you can definitely quality. see that in the uh the, the short film that we watched meshes mm-hmm. of the afternoon yeah, yeah, the, yeah the influence of the seventh seal yeah 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 so so this film again it, it was sort of you know, it got some attention in the avant-garde circles. People were interested in it. They definitely thought she was up to something. Um, just a couple points about production. She made this uh, near Port Jefferson uh, at Mount Misery Point on the northern coast of Long Island. They had to row out to it by boat, which I just think is interesting. You know, why didn't she? She could have found someplace else to shoot it, but that wasn't good enough for her. I'm I'm thinking uh, about Virginia Woolf and the waves for whatever mm. reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah we need to describe this yeah we're going to talk about Maya's relationship with the water a little bit more um, at land 
took six months to make. It cost $415, which is about $7,000 uh, in today's money. Yeah, it's right? a Pretty little modest uh, GoFundMe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and sh- this is, uh, in talking about this film, there's this great quote from her that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read. Um, this is from Maya. Quote, I was a poet before I was a filmmaker, and I was a very poor poet because I thought in terms of images. What existed as essentially a visual experience in my mind, poetry was an effort to put it into verbal terms. When I got a camera in my hand, it was like coming home. It was like doing what I always wanted to do without having to translate it into verbal terms. Right. So she's she's actually not this part of the reason her films aren't narrative is she's not trying she's she's trying to write poems with a camera is really okay. what she's trying to do that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. And so that yeah, you have to consider that it, it's 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 not coming out of the theatrical tradition it's something di- it's something different right a lot of cinema up to that point was basically like we're gonna film a play and then it's gradually more or less from there right sure. and so it's evolving sure. from there as you learn the technology can do different things and you know but for her it's like I'm going to write a poem with a camera. So it's right, a very right, right. There's, epic. there's still a, you know, whether or not cinema by the what the 40s had evolved past the purely theatrical, it, there was still had. a beginning, yeah. a middle, and an end. It, mm-hmm. it still owes that dramatic, um, I guess, vernacular to older forms of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And she says the what the end is the beginning. The beginning is the end. She mm-hmm. says something else. Yeah, exactly. It's all of a part, mm-hmm. right? For her, beginning, middle, and end isn't as meaningful as as some expressing some ever present, not always becoming thing. She's a vibe lord. <laughs> she is, yeah, for sure. Now, here's another thing that gets really cool. She makes this film. She's got Meshes of the Afternoon. She's got At Land, and she's gradually accumulating these other films. She becomes okay. So, Kevin, we think about. All right. Nobody wants to watch these movies. How do I distribute these movies? How do I get people to see them? How do I get butts in the seats? How do I make any money at all from this? Well, I'm going to have to do it myself. Right. And so she does two things. She, she sort of adds to her repertoire two things. She becomes a published film theorist and she becomes a, a very innovative film promoter. And I want to talk about the theorist part sort of first. 1946 around the time that at land comes out same year that she wins the can uh she wins the can grand prix international same year she gets the guggenheim um she's not quite 30 years old she puts out a book called uh, a chapbook really it's a 50 page thing called uh an anagram of ideas on art form and film um it's actually i i read almost i've read basically all of it it's really interesting so the setup is she has this grid. You have to imagine on the left, there is one, two, three. Um, one is the state of nature and character of man. Two is the mechanics of nature and the methods of man. Three is the instrument of discovery and the instrument of invention. And then there's a grid. That's the vertical axis. The horizontal axis is A, the nature of forms. B, the forms of art. C, the art of film. And every chapter is some connection of the horizontal and vertical of these. So there's wow. nine sections. This right. is very uh, glass bead game. That's, uh, yes. Very interesting. Yeah. As soon as you start to begin making original diagrams, 
and mm-hmm. riffing off them, you're you're ascending into some new realm of conceptual thinking yeah. that yeah. is uh, it generally pretty exciting. Yeah, I, and as I'm reading this, I, and I, like I said, I read pretty much all of it. A lot of it was there's some of it that's a little. Uh, maybe it could be argued to be immature a little bit, a little intellectually immature, but a lot of it is really pretty interesting. Um, I'm just going to read you a couple little snippets that I pulled out, just just so you get a sense of what she's doing in 1946 while she's making these films. Okay, this is from, uh, an, what was the title again? An Anagram of Ideas on Art, Form, and Film. Quote, Man's mind, his consciousness, is the greatest triumph of nature, the product of eons of evolutionary processes, of infinite mutations, of merciless elimination. Now in the 20th century, there are many among us who seek the long way back. In an essay on the relationship between art and the intellect, Charles uh, Dutz has given his commentary on surrealism a profound humor by referring to it in the terminology drawn from the medieval period. And I'm just giving you snippets so you get a sense of what she's doing here. Here's another uh, thing on modernity and creativity. <clears throat> Quote, creativity consists in a logical, imaginative extension of a known reality. The more limited the information, the more inevitable the necessity of its imaginative extension. The masks of primitive ritual extend the fierce grimace of the uncontrolled animal. The astrono- uh sorry, the ast- astronomical literary voyages of the 17th and 18th century extended the suggestions of the telescope. The contemporary quote-unquote primitive may achieve some extraordinary effects by imaginatively extending some immediate simple knowledge. But imagine his embarrassment at suddenly confronting fields of knowledge whose real discoveries make redundant his extensions and are often even more astounding and and miraculous. Um... See if I can find another thing. Uh, oh, she talks a lot in here about um, you'll like this, Kevin. She talks a lot on here about her problem, her issues with the documentary as form, hmm. and what she resents about it. In short, is that it pretends the documentary pretends it's realistic. Right. That's like right. Her sort of beef is like you guys. This isn't this isn't real. Right. Like you think it's real, but it's not real. And yeah. her point is like, I'm more re it, it, not to say that she was doing realistic, but she's like, I'm like, there's no pretension of me being realistic, but I'm, I'm not getting at a deeper capital T truth. Right. Or at least, right. I'm not pretending yeah. it's real. Right. Right. Yeah. This is why I admire Herzog's uh, mm-hmm. uh, documentary style so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. As um, soon as you bring the camera onto a scene, it's no longer yeah quote unquote it's, it's, real it's, i mean, I mean it's, yeah down into physics right as soon as you measure a thing it becomes yeah, you change heisenberg it, right? yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so she was very very aware of this and this actually caused her issues when she's trying to make a documentary about i it. like her even more now yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i'm on board yeah mm-hmm. um i think i'll i don't think i'll read too much more of that oh there is one thing uh this is interesting. This is about her talking. She refers to, kind of to Hollywood. Overall, mm. this section is about form and realism and the documentary, but she gets into how what's going on with Hollywood in this one section. Um, <clears throat> quote, uh, I do not intend to minimize the importance of literature or drama or any of the art forms which film records, nor even to minimize the value of such records. On the contrary, just as I am deeply grateful to some documentaries for showing me a world which I may have uh, been otherwise denied 
So I am grateful to those films which make it possible for me to see plays which I could not have attended or the performances of actors now retired or dead. It's totally reasonable. Uh, the rapidity with which so many Hollywood films cease to make sense or carry emotional weight is an indication of their failure to create meaning in the direct visual terms of their own immediate frame of reference. The shorthand cliches which they employ to bridge back to the literary terms in which the film is actually conceived are drawn not from a recognized mythology, but from superficial mannerisms which are transitory and soon lose their referential value. If the great works of art have succeeded in retraining uh, in retaining their value even long after... Uh, their symbols have lost their referential powers precisely because their meaning was not entrusted in the first place to the frail bridges of the symbolic reference. Right. And then give one more para and then we'll move on. It is also a common belief that when a literary work contains many quote unquote images, it is especially well suited to being filmed. On the contrary, the better the writer, the more verbal his images in the sense that the impact derives not from the object or events described, but from the verbal manner of their description. I take at random the opening paragraph of The Trial by Franz Kafka, right? And then she she starts to basically talk about the, the sort of cinematic value of, of the trial, but also where cinema can't quite do what the trial does, right? Not in a way of saying literature is better, but trying to understand the distinctions of the form of cinema. And what she's doing partially here is sort of formalizing ideas that she's not the only person to have them, but really we're, we're talking about it's film has been around for a while by 1940, but it's still relatively young, right? The first film, the generation of filmmakers who made the first films are still alive. And I think what she's partially trying to do is come up with what are the tenets of film itself as an art form, not film as a, a way to make books and to, so you can see them and not film as a way to turn plays and, but actual film as its own art form on its own. What, what, what is it, what is it trying to do and what is it doing at its best? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so not too much of a deep thinker here. It's just sort of real <laughs> surface level. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. 30 years. Right. And like, she's 30 years yeah. old. Right. And she's I just like, want to kind of just chill out. <laughs> no, don't act. I really admire this. I'm, I'm being. Yeah. She's no, she's, joking. she's kind of, yeah. I mean, she's pretty awesome. Yeah. This is how you, I mean, she's already won a Guggenheim at this point for making film. Now she's. Yeah. This is right around the time she dating. does anyway. Yeah. 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 Yep. Right. Um, yeah. Really so interrogating the form. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she wanted to know how does this thing work, right? It wasn't going to be enough to just point a camera at an interesting thing. You needed to know what made it mean something, right? Um, now, the other thing I said she did, she became a film theorist and a film promoter in addition to being a filmmaker. Um, she does something pretty friggin' cool. She, in 1946, she books the Provincetown, Provincetown Playhouse in Greenwich Village. This is an old school theater where Eugene O'Neill worked uh, and E.E. E. Cummings had a play stage. It was a it was a it was not the centerpiece, but it was a major it was a major avant garde, not even avant garde uh, indie. It was an institution. It was a theatrical institution in Greenwich Village in the 40s. She um, showed the first film, the first film apparently ever shown in the Provincetown Playhouse was Meshes of the Afternoon. And she took three of her films, Atland, Meshes of the Afternoon, and um, uh, another one we haven't talked about, a study of choreography. Um, 
And she bundled them together, had a prepared lecture that kind of wove them together um, and put it under a program titled Three Abandoned Films from Valerie's notion that no, a work of art is never finished. It is only abandoned. And she sold out the Provincetown Playhouse for this event. Right. <laughs> right. right. Cool. It's badass. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Right. It's like I make these crazy, I make these crazy art films and no one's ever going to pay for them. You know what? Right. I bet they and will every, pay for them. Every second person there is a heavy too, mm -hmm. or third person is a heavy. Yeah. 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 Now, exactly. And this is how big of a hit it was. This is how this is what this is the effect that this had on on film history. Uh, this guy, Amos Vogel, sees this, goes to it, and is like, I can't believe what she's doing. This is incredible. And he decides he's going to start up this thing called Cinema 16. And Cinema 16 is a, it's a, sort of a film society. And there are, a, over the course of between uh, 1947 and 1963, um, they end up showing a bunch of people's films, some of them giving them the first airing. They would show films by Roman Polanski, uh, John Cassavetes, uh, Stan Brack, uh, Brackage, who we're going to talk about later, to show films by Kenneth Anger. This was like a real opportunity for people who were making films, avant-garde avant films, to present them to an audience, right? It was in Cinema 16. Now, in 1963, Cinema 16 went by the wayside, and that's because Amos Vogel founded, with a couple other people, the New York Film Festival. Right, which is going on to this day is one of the most prestigious film festivals in the world. And Amos Vogel basically got there because he was inspired by what Maya Deeren was doing at the Provincetown Playhouse. Yeah, right? that rocks. I like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Really cool. So let me give you a quote from the, I'm going to put my monocle on, give you a quote from the New Yorker article. Um, oh, no, I, I just did. I just did this. So there are like a million. You could just screen grab this on YouTube. I'm not. Well, right. yeah, well, Illuminati right. confirmed. Yeah. <laughs> that should be just a red eye. You put that on, and that eye becomes right, red. Right? Yeah, uh, I might get a monocle. It's too quote, unquote, unquote, by achieving worldwide recognition uh, for films that she made on her own with family and friends on trivial budgets. Deeren spurred generations of experimental filmmakers to follow in her footsteps. Their films then found a home in institutions that she'd helped bring to life. As for the specific influence of Deeren's artistry, it radiated outward in many directions and inspired a wide range of avant-garde filmmakers such as uh, Shirley Clark, uh, Yvonne Rainier, uh, Giannis Makis, and Barbara Hammer. These are people in the avant-garde avant cinema world. I'm not super familiar with their work, but these are these are heavies in that world. Um, the most conspicuous and perhaps most significant adaptation of uh, Darren's far rangingly associative yet meticulous composed fantasies may well be in the movies of David Lynch. As we mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, David Lynch there has acknowledged go. Meshes of sure. the Afternoon as being a big influence. Um, OK, so Maya. After doing this thing in 1946, and as she's starting to get this attention from Cannes and the starting the Guggenheim stuff is happening, she goes from being a player in the scene to briefly being the scene in Greenwich Village. Um, she is, uh, they end up being sort of friends with everybody. And there's a whole bunch of names you could give. Um, I want to give you a couple anecdotes from this time. One is from this guy, Graham Ferguson. He's a guy who co-invented IMAX film technology, and he was good friends with her. Hmm. And this is him talking about Maya. Quote, she came from the sea. 
She saw herself as a sea creature. Her bedroom was like a grotto under the sea, and it was full of many beautiful objects, shells, coral, and on the ceiling there was a very large, unusual painting of underwater creatures. In normal light, you would see that. When the lights were turned out, it turned out that it was painted with phosphorescent paint, and so suddenly it came to life with different colors. You really felt like you were under sea at night. Right, so she's really occupying this like aesthetic art. She's she's the artiste, right? So every aspect of her life has to be artistic. She's making her own clothes. She's making these films, and then she's telling you why they're so good, right? And then she's 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 completely sort of self created creature at this point. Yeah, right. Mm. There's a newspaper article about a party she has, right? Um, I think it's might have. I don't know if this was the New York Times or like might have been like the Village Voice. Um, Quote, a couple Saturdays ago, villager Maya Deren, uh, an author, lecturer, voodoo expert, and maker of avant-garde movies, threw a party for some three-score friends, artists, writers, dancers. There was impromptu music by flute, bongo, drum, guitar, and piano, excellent grub, uh, much conviviality. Artist Roy Colonna was among the company, and here are a few of his impressions of a typical village artist party. And then there's some drawings, which I can't obviously show you. Some entertaining sort of cartoon-like drawings of this party. Now, so she would host these parties, and again, like I said, she was the scene for a little while. The trick for her, though, was it required a bit of energy, as you might imagine, to be Maya Deren after a while right you got to make the films you got to do the lectures you got to make the clothes you got to make your bedroom a grotto you gotta like you know what i mean and, and like right I and said, new york is already a, a frenetic town right. there's a lot it's it's hard to to ever really feel like you're getting any r and r in new york city right tell from tell you from experience you got to yeah. go out of your way to ever you got to get out of town mm-hmm. to, yeah to, to actually relax. chill out for a second yeah, yeah. right now, so uh, associated with this, at some point, along comes Max Jacobson, better known as Dr. Feelgood. Now, Dr. Feelgood, as we talked about in the Anais Nin episode, was the guy who was basically basically responsible for feeding all of the famous people, <laughs> including the only Kennedys. 25,000 yeah people yeah, alive yeah. at a given time <laughs> right right the theme so, of the pod it yeah. is it is so so maya had started doing uh benny's ben's a dream when she was touring with Catherine dunham to keep up um it's not clear how addicted she was but sometime in the 40s possibly as early as 1943 she started getting the quote-unquote vitamin shots from dr max jacobson now um we could go in depth here um it might be interesting at some point to do a Max Jacobson episode where you just like, like we did Chelsea Hotel. It's just like all the different people. That all the Max people Jacobson. he treated. That is yeah. a great idea. That might be a Patreon special. We'll figure yeah. that out. But yeah, just we'll like, a, like a 90 minute Dr. Feelgood episode would be very cool. Yeah, it would be kind of cool, right? Um, whatever the case, let me read you this quick thing. Again, I'm going to put my monocle on from the New Yorker article on Max Jacobson. Okay. Quote, Jacobson, born in 1900, studied medicine in Berlin and fled Nazi Germany in 1936. He had a lifelong interest in treating multiple sclerosis, but he made his name developing booster shots for healthy patients, first among other European emigres, then in New York's theatrical community, and eventually in Hollywood and Washington. Sloshing and mixing amphetamines, vitamins, enzymes, tranquilizers, placenta, and anything else that inspired him into what he, into what he called an IV special. 
the charismatic Jacobson came up with concoctions to pump up stressed out celebrities. Otto Preminger, Truman Capote, Tennessee Williams, Alan J. Lerner, Eddie, uh, Eddie Fisher, Anthony Quinn, they all saw him. Dr. Max Jacobson's devo uh, devotees came to his practice throughout the day and night, sometimes mistakenly breaking into nearby offices, offices to search for drugs. And he not only shot them up, he taught them how to inject themselves and prescribed them needles. Maybe they will destroy me, but they make me see life in a good way, Learners told his wife about Jacobson's treatments, according to testimony. And this goes on to this day, of course. Yeah million different things yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. like yeah, this add, even now adderall yeah. modafinil everything else right oh now, by, by the 1960s just a quick because this is the max jacobson story is too good to just skip gloss over entirely by the 1960s max jacobson is shooting up the kennedys jacqueline and uh, and john f kennedy right <laughs> uh he traveled Ooh. to i didn't know this he traveled to vienna with jk JFK to shoot him up right before a summit meeting with Khrushchev, right? Uh, so it's like the, he's he's at the he's like at the in the halls of power by the 1960s, and in the 1940s he's kind of hanging out with like the theatrical community and Anais Nin's friends and all of that. And Deeren gets hooked up with him and gets shots. Now it's tricky because to get shots from Jacobson. You're not, it's not the same as like going to a drug dealer and like, I know I'm buying like street drugs. He's a doctor and all your friends do it. And he's, you know what I mean? And, and so it's weird to like, it, like, did Maya Deeran do drugs? Yes. Was she like a druggie? It seemed like she was using it for like motive. Get like up and go. Power. Yeah. And so, yeah. It's, it, but she was definitely doing it and she was doing it for a long time. Right. Yeah. Um, she New actually, York City. New York actually, City is a... in this in this book, this uh -huh. Haiti, this uh, yeah. Divine Horseman book. She thanks Mac Jacobson in the introduction for okay. his quote unquote creative medicine. I I dig it. Yeah, New York is a is a booze and yeah. uh, uppers town, man. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. New York is not a like a psychedelic town. Although no. increasingly, apparently, people you know smoke weed. I guess you can yeah. come down, but I don't know. I'll always I, associate I, New York City with booze and I. Other I was stuff that I was keeps in, you awake. I was in New York City recently, and I have to say, on the street, I don't think there was any point at which I couldn't smell weed. Yeah. That's yeah. been a big change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very curious. Yeah. Hmm. Well, hopefully um, it'll calm everybody down. Maybe. Just maybe chill out. Yeah, it might take down, the yeah. edge. Uh, take the maybe. edge off a little bit. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll talk about another film that Maya made. Uh, this also was finished in 1946. This was called Ritual in Transfigured Time. Um, let's kind of read this little bit here. In this film, uh, Rita Christiani, uh, an African-American dancer from Trinidad, um, She's in this film. There's sort of this distinctive camera stops. There's a lot of dancing. It's very dance heavy. Maya was very interested in dance and trying to actually capture dance on film, which, uh, you know, I think a lot of people think, no, you just point the camera at it. And to her, that's not quite right. You're trying to capture the dynamism of the of it. Yeah. Well, and we're getting ahead of things here. But of course, we're mm -hmm. doing another female filmmaker later this year in Lenny Riefenstahl and mm -hmm. Lenny would have been uh, similar in terms of sport 
Mm, she influenced right. everyone that came yeah. after in terms of the Olympics to this day are in the way they're shot go it goes all the way back to that oh really that interesting work. oh yeah very mm. interesting yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah that's the thing is right now now we feel like some of this stuff is obvious like when it comes to like how something is presented to you on video but it's like people had to figure out how to shoot these things so they made sense to you it wasn't it wasn't obvious right from the beginning the first time somebody right. had a camera in their hand well right? and they're and they're still innovating with it too like the the NFL now has these like those cameras that fly down over the field mm -hmm. and all of it Polia talks about how the uh, 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 any given Sunday just a typical NFL game is an all-time great achievement of cinema every single time and she's totally right yeah it's this it's incredible spectacle every time it really is uh, and, and yeah. the way it's able to their way they're able to like hold together a narrative and you know mm -hmm. like yeah it's it is actually i hadn't really thought about that but that's very true and we're yeah. seven minutes into kickoff on super bowl <laughs> sunday and brad and i are talking about the experimental film i'm starting to twitch a little here i'm certain because people are starting to talk about the game brad people oh, are starting to talk. no you take all the time you need okay good i got hulu i can rewind yeah. i don't actually care that much about the outcome however go birds okay yeah i don't, yeah. I don't know philly's philly's a okay. philly's okay. a great uh sports town i no, just okay. think give it to give it to philly yeah. okay. okay i have Fair no enough. skin in the game no skin in the yeah. game yeah yeah um okay so ritual and transfigured time I'm going to give you this is just the Wikipedia description because I don't want to spend I, I I don't want to spend too much time on any one film. Right. But I do want to make sure we're talking about them and you've got a sense of what they're about. So this is just from Wikipedia and Ritual and Transfigured Time. Quote, uh, Maya Deeran's character sits in a room with string wrapped around her hands in a manner reminiscent of a cat's cradle. String was a very big image for her and mirrors as well. Rita Cristiani is drawn to Deeran and begins winding the string into a ball. Close up and slow motion highlight the intense feeling on Darren's face as she talks and moves her hands up and up and down, performing the first of the rituals in the film. Anna is Nin looks upon the scene scornfully. Uh, Christiani finishes winding the string. Darren disappears and Christiani walks to the doorway Nin is standing in. Christiani is now wearing a black outfit with a veil and a cross necklace. A room full of people interact through expressive dance like movements. As they approach Christiani, she avoids them with graceful movements. Many shots and actions are repeated as she makes her way across the room. She looks around intently to find someone and, and spots this man, Frank Westbrook. The two meet and he almost kisses her on the cheek. Westbrook and Christiani dance together outdoors. He begins to dance with some other women and she leaves, looking back over her shoulder several times. One of these times she is replaced by Deeran. Right, So there's these figures replacing each other and this doubling, right? Christianity, Christianity comes upon Westbrook posing atop a pedestal as a statue. She approaches, he moves, and she takes a step back. He moves again, and she runs away. Westbrook slowly chases after her in long, leaping strides. He's, he's quite a dancer, this Westbrook guy. I, I watched this film. He's, he's very well built and very lithe and very, very dancerly. Um, he catches her. Darren runs underneath a pier into the ocean. She wades further and further into the water. The film switches to a negative image as she sinks down into the water. Christiani lifts the black mourning veil she was wearing at the party, but since it is a negative image, it looks like a white bridal veil. Right? So, yeah. And here's a quote from Maya about this, and then we'll move on. <clears throat> um, a quote from Maya about this film. Uh, a ritual is an action distinguished from all others in that it seeks the realization of its purpose through the exercise of form. In this sense, ritual is art. 
and even historically, all art derives from ritual. In ritual, the form itself is the meaning. More specifically, the quality of movement is not merely a decorative factor. It is the meaning itself of the movement. In this sense, this film is a dance. So kind of just interesting. Some, some Maya's sort of takes on her understanding of what she's doing and her theories on art more generally. Um, this is a woman who's packing more ideas into a 15-minute film than most will put into a feature. I think so. Yeah. And that's fine. Like there's room for the 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 romantic comedy feature mm -hmm. with the big yeah. names. Uh yeah. and maybe we pull a few little tricks from from Maya's uh kit, but she's just jamming each of these little movies into or all these ideas, just full of ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um now as we said 1946, uh, Darren is awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship for creative work in the field of motion pictures. Um, the idea is the funds are to continue her filmmaking. She doesn't tell them that at this time she's planning already to head to Haiti. Um, nonetheless, this is what she does. Uh, the initial idea is that she knows she's learned how to film dance. She's going to go there and she's going to film voodoo rituals using these this her idea of how, how she's learned how to film dance. Um, she kind of gets into this because of her interactions with Catherine Dunham when she worked for Catherine Dunham, the the, the matriarch of of black dance, um, and a man named Gregory Bateson, who's a, a famed anthropologist. Now, um, Gregory Bateson, this is an interesting another little connection. Gregory Bateson's about thirteen years older than Maya. He's like I said, he's this renowned anthropologist or who would become one, a semiotician uh, and a cyberneticist. Uh, who would co-develop the double-bind theory of schizophrenia and who was one of the original members of the Macy Conferences. Kevin, do you know anything about the Macy Conferences? Not a thing. So, okay. So there are these conferences that ran in New York from 1941 to 1960, and the idea was to promote meaningful communication across scientific disciplines. Hmm. The guy who founded it, uh, Josiah Macy, had a real uh, penchant for cybernetics. I mean, again, this is 1940s, right? Um, so these eventually they spinned off these conferences spun off into organized studies, the first organized studies in cybernetics and what would eventually become known, uh, sorry, cybernetics systems theory and what would eventually become known as cognitive science. Hmm. So out of the Macy's conference, you get what we know as cognitive science uh, fundamentally. Um, uh, and so anyway, this guy is. And this is interesting. Here's some subjects of the Macy conferences around the time that Maya would have known Gregory Bateson, who is a founding member. And she had a romantic relationship with him as well. Um, some in 1946, uh, in March of 1946, the Macy conferences were about uh, self-regulating mechanisms, simulated neural networks, uh, anthropologies, uh, and how computers might learn how to learn. This is 1946, right? Uh, Object <laughs> perceptions, feedback mechanisms, perceptual differences due to brain damage, and uh, deriving ethics from science. In 1946, the conference talked about concepts from gestalt psychology uh, and tactile communications among ant soldiers. And then in 1947, they were talking about child psychology. So there is some... And it was heavies like that were attending this. If you look at the people who founded it, yeah. it was blue link, blue link, blue link, blue link. Right. right. And and when you say the word cybernetics, I have a certain thought in my mind that has it, it just my 
pleb peasant brain mm-hmm. just goes to like robots. Right. And, but it's like, if you Google what it is, it's not that. No, it's, it's a, not. It's about machine learning, but also uh, life it's forms. Also, or It's, it's also a, about like, like decentralized control. Like there's a lot going mm-hmm. on. Cybernetics is, is a, there's a lot happening in there. And it's, it's more that more that like computer science is a subset of cybernetics rather than right. Like- it's about circular causal processes such as feedback. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. The, the so- cybernetics wiki page is like, whoa this yeah, is a this yeah. is a whole world i've never thought of no and these macy conferences these guys were like inventing artificial intelligence on paper before technology was available to do any of it right yeah. like it and was pretty all incredible theoretical. yeah so mm. so this yeah. gregory bateson guy's involved in this season and he's also an anthropologist um again there was a little bit of a romantic relationship uh, it's not clear i couldn't find out exactly what happened but whatever the case by the end of 1947, Maya was no longer with Alex Hamid. They were divorced, and she was no longer with Gregory Bateson. She's a free woman out on her own once again. Now, she's going down to Haiti, which is an auspicious... I mean, I, who, who, who goes to Haiti? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's an intense thing to do. Just sort of It like, really is. Yeah. 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 Missionaries. Um, yeah. Yeah. And some people, yeah. some people do. Some business people. Sure. Yeah. 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 yeah, she goes the first time she goes, she's there for uh 18 months. Whoa. Um let's see, I'm gonna read you this bit from her. Whoa, book. 18 months. Yeah. First time I was thinking goes. like she might go down for a couple of weeks and go down and shoot for a month or something. Wow. No, she moved Jeez. down there for real. Yeah. Whoa. This is the thing. This is the thing about my dear. Whatever you think of these movies, you might watch meshes of the afternoon and go, ah. Maya Deeran was for real. <laughs> okay, let me read you this part from this great book, uh, Divine Horsemen and the Living Gods of Haiti. Uh, <clears throat> quote, in September 1947, I disembarked in Haiti for an 18-month stay with 18 motley pieces of luggage. Seven of these consisted of 16-millimeter motion picture equipment, of which three were related to sound recording for a film, and three contained equipment for still photography. Among my papers, I carried a certificate of a John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship for, quote, creative work in the field of motion pictures, as, sing- as distinguished from documentary film projects which was a reward for the stubborn effort that had involved in creating, producing, and successfully distributing four previous films with purely private and limited means in the face of a cinema tradition completely dominated by the commercial film industry on the one hand and the documentary film on the other. Also among my papers was a carefully conceived plan for a film in which Haitian dance as purely a dance form would be combined in montage principle with various non-Haitian elements. I recite all of these facts because they're evidence of a concrete, defined film project undertaken by one who is acknowledged as a resolute and even stubbornly willful individual. She's laying all this out because she's trying to tell you, like, look, I had a plan. I didn't intend to become a voodoo priestess, right? <laughs> That's not what I thought was going to happen, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> um. Okay, so she ends up with thousands, I think 18,000 feet of footage, right? And at some point, she ends up with uh, this book. Uh, and uh, we'll explain a little bit about in, in it briefly. We're going we're gonna to talk more about the Haiti and the voodoo stuff in the after dark. But we got we to gotta cover a little bit of it here. Um, there is a little bit about... 
So it's interesting. So when I cracked this open and start to read it, I read the um, editor's foreword and then I came to the end of it, the editor's foreword. And I was like, this is a really interesting and well-written foreword. And then it says JC. I was like, well, who's JC? Who wrote this thing? I look it up. Joseph Campbell wrote the foreword to this book. Oh, okay. Maya Deeran was friends with Joseph Campbell. Um, They were homies. Okay. (laughs) And he asked, he asked her to write this book. And as we know, Joseph Campbell had little to no influence on the history of cinema. Right, right. Yeah, nobody, yeah, nobody, a name that nobody ever mentions anymore. Yeah. He was actually, um, after Hero of a Thousand Faces, he wanted to do a series of books and there was going to be too much for him to write, but a series of like books, each one of them was going to be more detailed about a world religion. And I think this was either the first, Maya's book was either the first or second book in that series, right? And so he he had asked her to write it um, because they'd had some conversations after she'd been there. And he was like, oh, you know, like... I haven't talked to anybody who understands voodoo and you seem to understand it. Um, so, um, interest. Yeah. So let me read actually this little bit that he wrote in this book, um, from the foreword <clears throat> quote, and this is Joseph Campbell again, uh, quote, Maya Deeran's definition of myth as the facts of the mind made manifest in a fiction of matter is the key to both the psychological interest and the moral relevant, uh, rev- relevance of her richly informed anthropology. It was just after I had completed work on The Hero with a Thousand Faces that I met Miss Deeran, fresh back from her first season in Haiti, and it was exactly her perception of the facts of the mind, which are all uh, are substratal to all productions of the human, ma- um, human imagination in the colorful local matter of the fictions, uh, and fictions is in quotes, of Haitian voodoo that immediately struck me with wonder and delight. Um, uh, there's interestingly, there's this thing. So there's this, this Haitian proverb that Maya is trying to go around. And the proverb is when the anthropologist arrives, the gods depart. And so the idea is that, yeah, <laughs> that's the same principle of that. We talked about earlier. That's the same Heisenberg. Uh, as soon as the camera's on mm-hmm. something something gives right yeah, and so my maya needs to figure out how is she going to get past that and the only way to get past it is to do it you can't sit on the sidelines and just point a camera at it gonzo cinema yeah exactly exactly um now this book will come out in 1940 or sorry 1953 it's based on her experiences between 1947 and 1951 she would continue to travel to haiti until 1955 um in that time period she would spend a total of two years um there altogether right over the course of eight so over the course of eight years a quarter of her time she spends in haiti mostly in the voodoo community and as we're going to learn more in the after dark the voodoo community is a fringe community in Haiti. A lot of people sort of believe it or they have a grandmother who believes it or something. But if you're in Port-au-Prince in, you know, in, in the in the center of civil uh, this, of civilization in Haiti, you're not you're probably not a voodoo practitioner, at least not publicly one. Right. So you're you're in Haiti. Maya's in Haiti, but then she's also in like out in the countryside with with these people doing these these, these rituals and these practices. Um uh, 
this is something that her interpreter. So in the documentary in the mirror with Maya Deren, um, they go back to Haiti to the community that she was in. They talk to people about, you know, people who may have known her and they talk to her interpreter. This is what her interpreter had to say. Yes. Maya served here. She was initiated for all the Loas. And the Loas are basically the gods or the spirits or the entities or the angels or the demons, depending on how you want to define these things. She, Maya, got a guardian spirit. She became she became Kanzo, that is initiated by fire. And then she became very strong. Everywhere she went, she could work. All right. So uh Whoa. Yeah. What? Kanzo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> cool. So cool. From right? uh, socialist apparatchik to voodoo priestess in Haiti. Yeah, with a Guggenheim fellow in or a fellowship in between. Yeah, that is intense, right? Isn't it? so cool <laughs> all right now I, one thing about the voodoo it, it, there's different ways to pronounce this voodoo uh which I, I have a hard time saying that for some reason uh voodoo i think is probably the appropriate way to say it but uh, in new orleans to my understanding it's pronounced voodoo so I, i'm just gonna be using these terms sort of interchangeably um uh I do want to talk a little bit more about the film she attempted to make. It did come out, I believe, it came out after her death. Footage of hers was arranged with voiceover readings from this book. That's how it worked. So it's not really a Maya Jiren film, though she did shoot the footage, if that makes sense. Um, it would be completed by her third and final husband, uh, Tieji uh, Ito. And we're going to talk more about him in a little bit. Okay, so she goes down to Haiti. She's got all this ambition, all this energy, just like she always had. And like we'd said, and we're trying to point out, she's she's known for her sort of organizational fervor, right? Her ability to make things happen. Um, now, she's had some unfinished films, but she she's, you know, that's mostly because her her ambition is bigger than than the capacity of any one person in some ways. Um She's able to leverage favors and information from all these people, not only Catherine Dunham and Gregory Bateson, as we talked about, but she read all of the work of William Saybrook, the guy who she was an assistant of, who'd also been to Haiti. She talked to uh, Joseph Campbell. She also became friends with Margaret Mead, the famous American anthropologist Margaret Mead. She also was very good at ingratiating herself to the locals. So um, she they just liked her, apparently. Right. Um there's a a bunch of people when they went back in this documentary there's a number of people who remembered her very fondly and um, did she have no um attachment to to judaism per se she wasn't synagogue she's was just like a fully secularized so for her the voodoo yeah. just comes in there's yeah, no I think, right hmm. i think when she hits this she's a full-on atheist like hmm. I, I think it's I, almost I, like I don't cinema think... cinema is her religion in a mm. way yeah, no, I think, has I think that's her. very true. Right. Yeah. Right. And she and again, she didn't go into this because she thought um, she thought there was something to the voodoo religion. She thought that the ritual was um, had retained some of its some of this like primal nature that had been lost uh, just as a ritual. Right. And mm. that she might be able to actually capture something that was still vital if she went down and tried to capture it as a dance. As Sounds a ritual like itself, uh, right? she did. Yeah, she did. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, uh, and so now 
a whole bunch of what comes out of this is interesting. So the film in her time doesn't come out, but a bunch of other stuff comes out. This book comes out, right? She she releases two uh, records of Haitian ritual music um, that are one's quite interesting. It's, it's it's hard to say that it's it's not like good listening to drive around to, right? You don't put it on and be like, oh yeah, that's a jam. But like it's 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 got something going on. It's got an energy to it that's that at times is sort of haunting, um, and at other times is quite intense. Are these on Spotify or Spotify? Yeah. Uh, you can look them uh, up on YouTube. Um, huh. Yeah, okay. I think cool. one's called Divine. If you look up Divine Horseman LP, Maya Deeran, mm-hmm. you'll get it. Um, Pretty sure Spotify is still our number one channel. So is that thank right? you for. I think so. Yeah. I thank you for yeah. listening on Spotify. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Spotify is the 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 user interface that's the most appealing, isn't it? Yeah, I really do. I, I think, think they they do a fine job presenting the podcast. If you're not mm-hmm. listening to it through the website at artofdarkpod.com, I believe Spotify has the yes, I know for a fact Spotify has the feed of all the great show art principally mm-hmm. from friend of the show Penny Colada, yes. who does these incredible psychedelic portraits of all the core subjects that we that we cover so if you haven't seen it yet on spotify check it out it's also the the greatest word for an american to attempt to pronounce in a fake (laughs) british accent is is forever that word it's so fun yeah i agreed yeah yeah Mm. spotify and spotify (laughs) what about (laughs) (laughs) wonderful and we love our uh our british listeners oh yes how y'all doing on the other side of the pond yeah we we also got i got a plug we got exact details not quite yet but art of darkness live it's coming saint paul minnesota fitzgerald part one yeah june Keep a lookout on the website. We're going to start promoting that soon. It's going to be a very intimate affair. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going I to be, might, I'm really looking forward to that. I might have to get my monocle in ahead of that. We'll, see. <laughs> well, if there's any New Yorker passages we're going to read, we definitely are going to need to Indeed, a yes. Yeah, yeah. very good. <laughs> Brad, by the way, we're going into hour four. We're yep. coming to the end of three hours here. Yeah. You're doing we're well up. into it. We're getting yeah. close. Yeah. I could feel you bringing us home here. I'm really excited. Mm. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod for the After Dark, where we're going to talk more about this voodoo voodoo child stuff with, mm. with Maya. This mm. has been a journey. I, yeah. I really didn't know what to expect. I like her more and more as we go along. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm very curious about some of these other films. You, you can yeah. see how she's just, uh, I, I mean, I, I got electrified doing this research. She's just like, what is, what's going to happen? Like, I kind of knew the story, but also just like, how does, how does she get from there to there? Like, yeah, how does that happen? B. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. And it's just following her instinct. A lot of times is what she's doing. Um, and having the courage to do that too, like not just like, oh, you know what? That would be kind of neat to go to Haiti someday, and maybe maybe I could go down to Haiti and film some. It's like, no, we're gonna do it. We're gonna load up a, a bunch of luggage. I'm gonna get a I'm gonna get a Guggenheim Fellowship for this, and then they don't know what I'm doing, but I just got a bunch of money, so we'll load up a boat and I'll go to this place I've never been to. And- yeah, yeah, it's yeah, there's it's a lot intensity. of bravery involved. Yeah. There really is, yeah. Mm. Um, now, 
so as I said, she starts to she puts out these different things related to her experiences in Haiti. She puts out the, this book. She puts out a couple albums. There was supposed to be a six record compilation of Haitian music that didn't end up ever coming out. But I'm sure that's all recorded someplace. Some of the problem is doing high quality field recordings at this time is a little bit challenging, right? Um, and and she wasn't an expert in doing that either. So some of the some of the the quality of it wasn't as good as it possibly as it might have been. Um, the other problem is the only thing that's kind of taking her away from this is there's money issues too. I know the Guggenheim fellowship is quite prestigious, but, um, when you look at the actual funding and you try to compare that, it's compare that to actually launching something like a film project, which is very expensive. Um, it doesn't quite measure up. Um, and so it's one thing to, you know, I need to pay my rent for a year but it's another to like, I need cameras. I need to hire people to carry it. And I need, you know, all of these things. It's very challenging, right? So there's money issues. She also starts to have health issues. Um, she has major surgery for an uh, abdominal hemorrhage and peritonitis, which is a severe affection of the abdomen. I don't know where that came from, but in 1954, she had to have this major surgery. Um, some people say that she couldn't actually fil finish the film itself, which was her main priority, trying to make this film. Some people say she could not finish it because she had accidentally cursed it with dark magic. Okay, so um, now Sarah Keller in Incomplete Control makes the argument that it's not really even uh, about a completing a film at some point um i think i think it's relevant here to kind of pull in um something that and i'm not going to pretend that i know what deleuze and guattari are all about all right uh, people who are on the internet probably people who some people who are listening to it this know deleuze a lot better than i do but one of the sort of theories that they worked out about art is that art isn't about creating a discrete product that you can package and sell, right? Art is about uh, inventing means for rendering uh, certain intensities of life visible. It's about rendering invisible forces visible, right? And so was Maya able to complete a film? No. Was she able to somehow go to the other side and bring something back. I think that's, I think there is an argument there that she did right with this book and her just her general experience. Um, I want to give you a quote from Maya about voodoo here. Uh, quote, I agree in the forces of the universe of which the voodoo priest speaks, but other religions speak of these forces. Also, I do find the manner it, uh, it operates in ritually the interior uh, the interior miracle if you will is very valid you see the haitians never ask whether you believe in voodoo they say do you do it right so it's not it's to them it, it does have a dogmatic principle to it but it's sort of like well did you try it you know it's easy to dismiss this thing but it's like did you actually try it or not because if you didn't then you don't really know what we're talking about right i like that i yeah. like that no, there is a there is there is a certain thing. I mean, this is the thing, and it's not like it's unique among religions for this. No, there no. is this thing in the center of voodoo that's possession, and you can go into it and decide that it's not what they say it is, 
but it is like a thing you have to you have to figure out for yourself what that is. If you're going to dismiss the religion or you're going to say they think they're doing something, but it's something else, that's all fine. But this is a phenomenon that's happening at the center of the religion. We're going to talk more about it. It would be like uh, claiming to be a Christian, but to have never been baptized. Something like that. It doesn't work. That is the thing. Right. At the heart of it. Yeah. Across denominations. Yeah. 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 And so you got to, you have to, you have to, yeah, it, it, you can't and i guess this is true of all religions like if you you can't dismiss them without getting coming to grips with what is that what they see as being the center of them right mm. right because right. otherwise you don't really know what you're talking about right 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 um yeah um now it's important too to 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 center us where we're at time-wise in what is the relationship of American culture or Western culture to Haiti at this time. Because mm-hmm. it's actually kind of an interesting time. Now we think of it as um I mean Kevin, what do you think what do you what what is Haiti to you right now? Well, I mean I've been on that island, but but I've been on the the DR, DR side. side. Yeah. I mean if I was to be candid without a filter, I think about extreme poverty. I think mm-hmm. about the slave revolt, uh, the, the sort of the talk one about that time. After yeah. Uh, okay. Interesting. Um, I think about the Clintons <laughs> and, uh, maybe the NGO complex and how mm. utterly corrupt all of that business is. Uh, mm-hmm. everybody wants to help, but it doesn't ever seem to, to change to or get really, there. Yeah, yeah. Reach them. Uh, so yeah, but yeah. I'm afraid I don't know much more than that. Yeah, no, and that's that's kind of what I want. I just wanted sort of a general sense. I don't know a whole lot about it modern day either, to be honest. I do know, I read this thing interestingly. In 2010, there was an earthquake there that may mm-hmm. have killed a quarter of a million people, and I'd never yeah. even heard of it. Oh, I was aware there was an earthquake. I mean, that was when the Clinton Foundation and company okay. got a ton of money, and then it just all kind of, what I heard is that it was sort of all kind of black hole. Right. You know, or right. most of it just got chewed up by administration. Um, it's one of those cases where if you want to be a conspiracy theorist, you can go, oh, these greedy, but it could also just literally just be administrative bloat and corruption on all sides, yeah. all directions. Yeah. Everybody's, yeah. yeah, everybody's peeling off the top until it gets to the end and there's nothing and there's left. There's just nothing right? left. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, so in Maya's time, it wasn't, that wasn't quite what it was. I mean, there was the perception that it was sort of quote unquote savage, right? But um, it wasn't, I, I mean, at the, right around this time, people like, uh, W.E.B. Dubois and Breton and Capote, uh, Truman Capote and John Dos Passos were visiting the country. There was a bit of a tourist attraction going on there, but it was sort of early day. It wasn't sure. It was like, it was like they were trying to turn it into a tourist thing and it hadn't quite decided if it was going to be yet. Right. Um, there were. Uh, photo shoots where New York socialites like went shopping in the markets and like expensive designer dresses, right? And things like this. And um, Lex, Les Baxter's famous Exotica album, Ritual of the Savage, came out uh, in 1952, the year that Maya was there. And I don't know if you're familiar with this. This this album, uh, R- Ritual of the Savage, our, our friend uh, Phil Ford from Weird Studies is a huge advocate. Not, I don't want to say advocate. He's very interested in Exotica as a genre. Um, but this album launched Exotica as a genre, right? That sort of Tropicana kind of like nightclub thing where you're going to like dress up as a witch doctor and bang on a drum. It was a thing in the 50s, right? 
So all that was right, going so on. While soon it'll be there. tiki bars and yeah. Right, yeah, that kind of. I understand. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so Maya Deeran, she's in Haiti when all of that. That's what Haiti is at that time. And but she's like, I'm going to go out into the. I'm going out into the fringes. We're going to go. You know, we're going to go talk to the talk to the gods. Um. Now, in 1952 is when she meets this guy, uh, Tiaji Ito. Um, he's actually 18 years younger than her. He's a Japanese guy from a theatrical family who ran away to New York when he was about 15 years old. Uh, uh, he was a dancer and a drummer and a composer who would have some success both off and on Broadway, mostly after Maya passed away. Um, he, when he met her, he was 17 years old. Uh, uh, by 1955, three years later, he was traveling with her to Haiti um, and studying under a master drummer in the voodoo tradition. Eventually, Maya and uh, Ito would get married in, at sea in 1955. After she died in the 70s, he would score meshes of the afternoon. Uh, and then he and his uh, fourth wife, he was also got married a lot of times, like Maya. Uh, he and his fourth wife would finish Maya's film, which was called Divine Horsemen, the Living Gods of Haiti. Um, they would kind of, and partially how they did this, instead of instead of Maya's vision for what this film could be, we're going to somehow capture the forces of, of dance. They were like, let's just turn it into a documentary. She has all of this footage. She wrote this book that's very, very sharp and very insightful. And she saw a lot of things that nobody else saw. We'll just take her footage and turn it into a documentary and we'll show various voodoo rituals. And it's good. It's it's a solid documentary. If you're interested in Haiti, if you're interested in voodoo, it's really, it's really good. It's about an hour long. Um, uh, let's see. So, uh, yeah, let me just read. We're, we're, we're kind of, we're kind of round in the horn here. Um, other than Haiti and the, the voodoo and stuff, she's got a few other things that she's working on. One is a film called Meditation on Violence, which is a great name, great title. Uh, the focus of Meditation on Violence is the dancer Chow Li uh, Chi. Uh, he was a Chinese-born American actor and dancer. I'm just reading from Wiki about him, who worked extensively in American television, uh, including... Uh, roles in interestingly enough including roles in big trouble in little china the joy luck club wedding crashers and the prestige huh okay yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? some big movies yeah right but but also like it feels like completely different times like it doesn't even feel like it could be the same person in a way right um and what this is about he's dancing it's 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 following him his him dancing he's sort of wearing just pants and he's a very fit guy right he's a dancer and he's a bit of, he's got a bit of a martial arts training and he um it cycles from at some point at hard edits like i think he jumps or he makes those sort of dance maneuver at hard edits and then he has a sword and then he's doing traditional uh wu-tang i believe it's wu-tang sword motions and then they run them same ones in reverse right so he does it it gets to the end and then the end is the beginning and it kind of goes back right it go, the film the whole, basically the whole film goes backwards so it's it's quite captivating to look at um wu-tang is for the children <laughs> yeah yeah quote uh from my dear wu-tang is for the children um i'm going to read you a little bit about this film from sarah keller's great incomplete control um quote uh 
The film's openness works both in favor of its themes, how violence and inaction are related to one another, for instance, and its structure, which is circular, recursive, and in excess of a closed system. The film evolves out of this, quote, form as a whole, and that form is its point. Dieren maps the formal ideas based on the notion of a, of a curve described describing traditional training movements of Wu-Tang and Shaolin schools of Chinese boxing. She charts this movement commencing with her performer executing steady and balanced movements, Wu-Tang, and then increasingly in intensity and speed, Shaolin, culminating with a peak of velocity and violence of motion, sort of Shaolin. The third section employs slightly disorienting cuts to keep up uh, with the pace and finally, even more disorientingly, climaxes in the opposite of what one expects of moving pictures, stillness. Chao Li Chi jumps into the air and Darren holds him suspended in air for a second or two before resuming his motion and allowing him to land. Darren explains, quote, the ultimate of an extreme becomes its opposite. Here, the ultimate of, of violence is paralysis. Okay, so that was her that was her bag there on meditation and violence. Quite, quite good. Quite interesting to look at. It's short. I can't remember how long. I think it's under 10 minutes. It's pretty interesting to look at. Another big project she worked on was called The Very Eye of Night. And this was probably her most ambitious film project other than other than the Voodoo film. Um, again, reading from Sarah Keller's Incomplete Control. March 1952, uh, Darren began uh, work on The Very Eye of Night. Uh, Very Eye takes dance as its subject, like many of her films. The project afforded Darren the opportunity to work with John Latouche, the Broadway lyricist and avant-garde sympathizer, as well as choreographer Anthony Tudor, with whom uh, Darren had hoped to collaborate for some time. Former resident composer for the American Ballet Theater and head of faculty for the Metropolitan Opera Ballet School, Tudor arranged the choreography and managed the dancers. Again, he's a heavy in this world, right? Um, Just as with Ensemble, another film she tried to make but didn't quite come off the first shots of the very eye of night featuring uh uh feature a separate credit for darren herself um that also is joined by uh, credits listing personnel in a creative visual way these credits depict an eye with an iris divided into two hemispheres one light and one dark each successive image gives the names of the dancer actors who are credited alongside with a drawing of the character they play um uh, scrolling down a little bit. Oh, you know, I'm going to skip that part that basically, oh, here's the part. Okay. Here's the part. Um, uh, each one, <clears throat> each character is depicted at a slightly closer view in relation to the one that comes before it. First Gemini played by two male dancers, then four satellites of Uranus, Ariel, Titiana, Oberon, and Umbriel. Uh, and then, uh, Uranus, and his female counterpart, Urania, are next, followed by Noctembulo, the somnambulist who has drifted in his sleep from one film to this one. So it, it's a very, like, you're starting to get almost into, like, psychedelia. Like, the 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 dancers are all, they wearing complete black, but then it's filmed in, in negative, and then they're superimposed on a screen of stars. It's a very cosmic, like, wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, if she had lived far out to, to see the music video. I right. wonder what, yeah, she could have she crushed would, she that. She would have made a killer music video. Do you right? remember when music videos mattered? Yeah, like oh, yeah, yeah. Really mattered? Yeah, <laughs> Bowie and all that stuff. Right, oh, it's right. so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A um, couple other things she worked on. Um, she had this dance effort that would have become a film um, 
called she was working on called the transformations of medusa she was working on that with uh gene erdman who was the wife of joseph campbell she was going to film the overture of the magic flute with choreographer anthony tudor uh, in 1956, Maya started the Creative Film Foundation with the idea that she would find means to getting funding for experimental film projects. This did kind of come off. She was unfortunately unable to give anybody money, but she started up like an award system for experimental films. And the, the benefit of that was a lot of these experimental filmmakers had no other way of getting any recognition, right? There's not it's hard. To, I mean, we've said this a million times, but they didn't have the internet back then. You couldn't go on YouTube and find some experimental filmmakers website. These things were hard to find, right? You literally had to bring the can to the cinema right, and put it in the reel and yeah. show it to people. Yeah. And so Maya was trying to find, figure out ways to sort of institutionalize it to some degree. And if she'd lived longer, maybe she would have had some success there, right? That would have been something she could have kind of retired into, perhaps. Um, uh, she had this thing called Season of Strangers, which was really her last, last film project, um, which was working on, started at this workshop in Woodstock. It was going to be like partially educational, but then she was going to sort of segue from educational into the, the workshop actually making a film. Um, it's kind of interesting. I'll read a quick quote from incomplete control about this uh the second part of the seasons of strangers would take place over three days of the first weekend friday through sunday uh darren titled this segment of the workshop quote filming an Im image through the camera eye the plan coincides with most of the footage that exists for the film for the first two days she planned to seek quote patterns of movement across the screen requiring rehearsal both for people and camera movement as well as extensive lighting of the scene for the last day, she hoped to film smaller groupings. Through this, this part of the workshop, Darren intended to undertake most of the logistical matters related to filming for the project, after which students could, quote, pose questions on any phase of the day's activity. Her teaching style strategically incorporated a balance between practice and analysis slash reflection. So she was trying to teach people how to make films like she made films right with the same sort of ethic and the same level of diligence and i think she was often very dismissive she knew all of the experimental filmmakers in greenwich village and she was often very dismissive of their work and i think what it boiled down to was like you guys aren't you guys aren't taking this seriously enough like you're you're kind of just vibing and really what this requires is very deliberate devotion to the craft. And we're trying to figure out what that craft is. Um, okay. So we are, we are, we are getting there. Okay. We're almost there. Final years. Maya had this reputation in Greenwich village and the art world, of course, but the truth is as the fifties are winding down, She's kind of alienating most people. And partially this is due to the fact that she's so intense and she's so demanding. And you could be her best friend. Sure. And if, yeah, you could be her best friend. And if you're like, Maya, I'd like you to see this film I made. And if she didn't like it, she'd be basically tell you she didn't like it. Right. And, and that, that can be alienating for people. And some people can right. handle it. Some people need to be cu cultivated a little bit. Right. Yeah, the charm of that can wear off too when a relationship isn't reciprocal over time, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and it's always the the Maya show yeah. all the time. And I think that's uh, a big that factor can get in this too. a little a little tiresome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been on mm -hmm. both sides of that. 
Yeah. You got to, yeah. it's an, it's always a negotiation. It's yeah. it, it for sure is. Now the other thing. Okay. So one of her friends who, who talked about her quite a bit is this guy, Stan, uh, Stanley breakage. Um, he's a guy who's a, who's a well-known experimental filmmaker or was a well-known experimental filmmaker. You know, he's a guy who kind of, he, he would paint right on the celluloid. And so sort of one of these guys who was the forerunner of sort of psychedelic film, right? Cause he would paint and then you run the film and it's a very interesting and unusual visual spectacle, um, became notable for films like the dog star man series, moth light and some others. He was good friends with mine, lived with her for a while. Some other friends of hers in the late fifties were, uh, this guy, Willard Moss, Jonas Mikas, uh, Joseph Cornell, John Cage, uh, uh, um, so she still had friends around, but she was, like I said, she was kind of alienating them. Now, the thing is, even though she's back in New York and the last time she visits Haiti is in 1955, she still takes voodoo very seriously. Uh, well, and, and okay. In, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And in fact, in uh, 1955 or 1956, she's invited um, by the actor Jeffrey Holder to preside over her over his wedding. And Jeffrey Holder is this at the time, he's this rising Trinidadian theatrical actor. Um, he'd been uh, he'd done really well in Broadway on uh, Truman Capote and Harold Arlen's musical House of Flowers. He'd been in that. And then he'd later much later be known as Baron Smitty in uh, the Bond film Live and Let Die. He stars as like the voodoo villain in that right. that seventies Bond film. Interesting. Okay, yeah. so that's now, a big in, career if you get to if you get to be a Bond villain. Yeah, it's for sure. Heavy duty. It yeah, started on day. started on Broadway, right? Yeah, um, cool. Yeah, and so he was getting married, and they wanted Maya to come. Interestingly enough, he's from Trinidad. Um, his the woman he's marrying is born to. Uh, she was born in California, but she, her parents were uh, New Orleans Creole, and they bring Maya in to make their wedding more authentically voodoo. Right, just interesting, right? They're going to bring this Russian immigrant in to make your thing more authentic. Yeah, this, this like Jewish gal, but she right. did it for yeah, wow, she's for real. Yeah, right? she's, she's got cred. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not a yeah. LARP. Right. For, it's not. It's Maya. not. Yeah. No, maybe it started as. Yeah, she she was for real. Now she's the real deal. Now she's supposed to preside over this wedding. And then Stan Breakage, the guy I mentioned before, who who did the did the very experimental films, he was supposed to he came to the wedding. He was supposed to be like a um, I think he was just going to photograph the, the wedding. I don't know that there was like going to be an artsy component to it. The other thing to remember is all these people are hard up for money for the most part. And so, you know, you're a serious artist. But like if somebody's like, hey, here's, you know few hundred bucks you want to come shoot my wedding yes i will mm -hmm. come to that sure. right oh yeah um um okay so she'd been preparing she'd been preparing Maya had been preparing all of this stuff to make it an authentic haitian voodoo kind of wedding um and they had decided it was sort of too much and they'd said maya like thanks but like how about you just go kind of hang out in the house we got it from here and maya at this point she had been she had been in a papa loco trance this is according to stan breakage and papa loco is the god of ritual and papa loco doesn't want to just be dismissed he's not going to say you this is too much right um and so maya flies into what stan breakage calls a holy rage and he claims that she was in the kitchen snarling and growling and picked up a refrigerator and threw it across the room. 
<laughs> cool. <laughs> that is right. again. Wow, wow. That is metal. So yeah, she's so five crazy. foot two, mm-hmm. inhabited by the the spirit of Papa Loco. <laughs> Papa Loco, that's a good metal. It mm-hmm. is a good metal yeah. band. Yeah, they're opening yeah. for Sepultura. Right, right, yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, yeah, and yeah crunchy, so, heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Throws a refrigerator across the room, and then nice. also at, at also at this event, she, um, Stan Breakage, he's supposed to be taking the photographs, and so she, uh, Maya wants to bless him, give him the Papa Loco blessing, and the Papa Loco blessing. This is what it included when Maya did it. Anyway, you pour rum on the person and then set it on fire. Nice. Cool. So Stan Breakage yeah. is in like I, a suit just, and he's on fire all of a sudden. He's trying to put this, himself this out. In contrast to the traditional American for loco right. uh, <laughs> right. blessing where you pour for loco on someone your throat yeah. and set it on fire. <laughs> right. yeah, it's so crazy. They're yeah. Same but different. Same but different. Similar. Yeah. yeah. Similar. Yeah. <laughs> oh man so breakage uh, has these great stories about her one he says is he showed up um she had some event that she needed envelopes she needed some help stuffing envelopes or something right because even though she gave up socialism and communism she's still like a, she's still gonna like organize and stan breakage was supposed to um uh come and help her out and he shows up really late and maya put a curse on him and he claims he got very, very ill, like almost dying ill and sort of pulled out of it at the last minute. And that was Maya's curse on him. And he had this to say about her. Uh, uh, that's the two sides of Maya. And I saw them both. I benefited and suffered from them. People that want to either uh, either make her one or the another thing or any diminutive thing are not understanding one the beautiful complexity of w- this woman, and two, they are not understanding artists at all. Uh, yeah, really interesting. Okay, now I, I just said fair enough. That yeah, is heavy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. a turn for her that I didn't that didn't quite expect. I didn't uh, quite expect her to to be this troubled somehow. Yeah. But I guess after the experience of. She's still kind of in relative poverty too, isn't she? She doesn't oh, have yeah. any money. Okay. No, there's no money. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. yeah, yeah not even no family money. money or it's just the gone. family money. The family money ran out a long time ago. Wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, um, between that wedding, excuse me, in 1955 and in her death. How do you, how do you go and become a voodoo priestess mm-hmm. and then come back to New York and get anything remotely like a normie job? Right. Or even like right. set up a studio and what like make commercial films. Like she's not gonna go over. She's not gonna go over to Madison Avenue and find Don Draper, right? And go sit in a in a box and be a creative. Right, yeah, right, no. right, right. Huh? Yeah. I mean, she from her perspective, she sort of saw the other side. Man, you know, like you yeah, know, whether she did or not, like that's mm-hmm. her perspective. Now between that wedding. And her death. We talked about some of her other projects, right? This, this, the, the very eyes, of, the very eye of night, and and um, the season of strangers, and all of these things. Nothing really. A uh, very eye of night did manage to get. She did manage to finish that, but it had all kinds of financial problems. An investor backed out, and all kinds of things. Um, but uh, by 1961, she's still living in Greenwich Village, and there's no money. Like she would go to friends and just ask them if they could feed her for the day. 
right? If they had any food in their fridge, right? She's at that level. Um, you know, she's a starving artist in her 40s. And that's a little different than being a starving artist in your 20s. Um, and she's with single or is she married? No, she's with this Japanese guy, Ito. They're still married. They're married right until the end. But, and he's, but he's not earning? Not really. I mean, I don't know what his citizenship status was. And he would have a, a pretty successful career later. But I mean, he's still... I mean, 19, he's still like in his mid twenties at this point. Yeah. Oh, right. Of course. He's so yeah, much he's a younger. He's a young guy, yeah. Right. Wow. So, that is, that is messy and unpleasant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the shine kind of comes off the romance of artistic poverty around the time you turn 30. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. does. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. So she's, so in 1961, she becomes deathly ill and uh mm-hmm. october 12th she falls into something like a coma crowliness yeah is that right oh yeah okay mm-hmm. october october 12th um mm-hmm. uh ito believed that she wouldn't die because friday the 13th was the next day and then it's some kind of like inversion of luck it would end up being her good luck that she would come out of this right um and you know it was just wishful mm-hmm. thinking he mm. he believed she was he was he was at this point they thought he was due some inheritance but they were having legal trouble getting it i don't know if this had to do with you know japan japan to america i don't really understand it but apparently they were both very upset at this time because he was supposed to be getting some money and they couldn't get their hands on it he kind of thought that her, she was so upset about this that it made her ill right oh no um oh. Yeah. Now, others said she was upset because of dealings with an investor. I mean, it's a very stressful situation, right? Trying to get these films made. And she's this, you know, powerhouse person who, who, you know, the luck is kind of running out now. Mm. Um, the official story is that she becomes so malnourished, possibly malnourished, possibly um, uh, exacerbated by years of using Dr. Feelgood's, quote, creative medicine. Mm. Uh, that she had a cerebral hemorrhage. Mm. Uh, whatever the case, she, you know, she died uh, Friday the thirteenth, uh, October of nineteen sixty-one, uh, in the hospital with Ido and her mother Marie near at hand. Now, to finish this story, I want to give you one more stand breakage quote. <clears throat> Quote, she had to be these many things, Maya, obviously, had to be these many things to be the creative person that she was, to do these things in cinema that had never been done before. In fact, you could say leaving the word cinema out of it, to affect rituals in moving vision that had never been done before. And it took all these powers. And alas, at some point, finally, when an artist has powers like these, if, this, if those powers get outside of the work process, they can kill you. And I fervently believe that is what killed Maya at 44 years old. It was become because somehow the powers of Voodoo got outside of the work process and partially because she didn't get the money to finish her last film. So that's how Stan thought about it. <laughs> Died. Uh, Ito took her ashes and spread them at Mount Fuji in Japan. And yeah, that's... That's the story of, of Maya Deeran, 1961, died at age 44, lived about 10 lifetimes in that, in that time frame. Um, Just a yeah. huge 
interesting life and another (laughs) art of darkness core episode in the can boom bam (laughs) cinematic dramatic exciting interesting i learned a lot i'm gonna have to go down the maya darren yeah uh, check them out check out at land if you're gonna watch one of them in my opinion it's at land okay Well, yeah. it's so curious too because it seems to me you could probably watch all of her films in two hours. Yeah, under. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, and get a get a taste for what she's about. I, I, very, yeah. very interesting uh, how influential she was, and even just glancing at that one uh, film, Mesh mm-hmm. of the Afternoon, Meshes uh, of the Afternoon, yeah, Meshes of the Afternoon. Just picking up the how, yes, of course, you could see the influence on Lynch. And if you're a Lynch mm-hmm. stand like I am, and I think yeah. you are, Brad, you owe mm-hmm. it to yourself at least to watch a couple of these. Yeah, I think Nicely so. done. Yeah, thanks, Well man. done. Yeah, she's, she's a fascinating story. Today, Brad, oh. what do you think she's doing? Yeah, she never sold out, I'll tell you that. Uh, she, <laughs> she, she might have given up on film. I think she would eventually decided that what her artistic expression was really going to be wasn't like Stan Breakage says at the end there. It's not so much about making a film, making a specific thing that she can give to you, but really wrestling with force, invisible forces in some way, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. I think she may not have put it in those terms. I think was what her, artistic thesis ended up being right she took poetry she tried to be a poet and she realized she couldn't wrestle with those forces and those images quite adequately with that and so she went mm. to cinema and she found some success there but then eventually she had to go straight into this this ritual this very yeah. very outside for her from her cultural lineage a very strange and exotic ritual process mm-hmm. right and i think that I think her following that track would have just continued. I mean, she might be, she might be like running ayahuasca ceremonies. I don't really know, you know? Yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, she seems like she might've been somebody who would possibly evolve away from art, away mm-hmm. from filmmaking. Like I've yeah. kind of done it. You know, one of these people who makes their 10 short yeah. films influences the rest of cinematic history, but becomes moves upstate uh, and you know, she's an interesting one because we can sort of speculate what she would have maybe done in the third act of her life because she died and have one yeah. right in the middle of it. I mean, if, if we try to put her today into this landscape, she was so interested in form and, and cutting edge form. I wonder if she would be drawn to something other than cinema. Like what is today's cinema? Would it be a game? Would it yeah. be? Would she just be messing around with a TikTok channel, or should would she still be trying to do something new with new with cinema? Hard to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She'd be doing something though. I mean, I think I don't mm-hmm. think that engine ever really quits. Yeah. Well, like and we're gonna come back here now after a short break for our Patreon subscribers. We just got another subscriber while hey. we're recording. I always love to see that. That's a fun coincidence. You put it out there into the ether, yeah. and uh, you never know. Somebody might subscribe. Please do. You get mm-hmm. all the after dark episodes. Uh, there are bonus episodes tagged on to every single episode we do. We do quarterly recaps, we do a book club, even if you can't be present in the Zoom for the book club, we record it. Uh, so just tons of extra stuff for people who care to check out five bucks a month minimum to support the pod mm-hmm. 
We hope you will. And we hope you enjoyed this. And Brad, another, I know what that, this feels like, by the way, there's a quality of like kind of relief mm-hmm. and also, well, we're not quite done. No. We're going to talk more about voodoo, but the, the, the heavy lifting is done. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah it's a really, you know, and it's, it's uh, obsessive prep towards the end, especially mm-hmm. it starts to get kind of obsessive. And then I'm like, I really enjoyed that, but I don't have to think about Maya Deeran for a little while. Right. You can kind of put it away. And I'm staring at my looming stack of Hemingway books. I'm going to here. I'm actually going to show off real quick here. Yeah. This is my stack. If you're not following us on YouTube, please do youtube.com slash at art of dark pod. Brad, describe this to people who are not on YouTube. <laughs> it basically occupies the entire screen with, uh, I'm going to guess without counting nine or 10 different volumes more, more. of Hemingway and Hemingway associated literature. Uh, and Kevin's going to read every page of that by... <laughs> I, the honest God, I already have. I've read all yeah. of this because yeah. I, I'm a. I was working on a play about Hemingway for years. So anyway, Hemingway episode yeah. is going to be a certified banger. Oh, I can't Brad wait. just delivered one for mm-hmm. us. Maya Darren, very interesting, very exciting. On the After Dark for Patreon, we're going to talk about her voodoo practice. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about more about this school that was a school for idiots, but then yeah. was for the feeble-minded and then just was a school. That's going to yeah. be fun. Yeah. What else are we going to talk about, Brad? Well, on- I want to give people a sort of a primer on what voodoo is. Okay. So it's just going to be a little like, hopefully you'll walk away and have a slightly better understanding of it's not just voodoo dolls and people, you know, doing, I, I want you to come away without a caricature of what it is and have a sense of what it actually is. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah. in the meantime, I'm going to be uh, polishing my monocle. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Illuminati confirmed. <laughs> Ding. Ding. <laughs>